Radio Station. KFAN. This is the Big Rain Check Edition. I'm John Bonus of Trinidad.com. With me, Aaron Gleeman of TheAthletic.com. I'm afraid to ask what that means. Well, usually Dan Barrera is the big ticket. Oh. <laughs> he is out. Yeah. They've got the baseball guys filling in. We are the Big Rain Check. Yeah, we'll see if Chad Abbott comes running down the hallway, <laughs> realizing the mistake he's made of putting us on the air. Like he said, he's John Bonus, a.k.a. the Twins Geek, who is uh, the man behind Twins Daily as well as uh, TikToks that have been viewed hundreds of times <laughs> by people who ac- of times. accidentally stumbled across them and think, what is this old guy on TikTok for? Uh, I am Aaron Gleeman, uh, a Twins beat writer for The Athletic. We co-host now for, what, over 10 years, the very creatively titled <laughs> Gleeman and the Geek podcast. Correct. Which uh, hopefully a lot of you have, have listened to before, but if not... If you don't hate Welcome. the next three hours sure. that you're going to listen to as we sub, as we fill the very big shoes of uh, the big ticket Dan Barrero, check out the Gleeman and the Geek podcast. We're going to talk a lot of twins today. They are 3-0 and as we speak, although their fourth game is tonight. Right. And they're in Miami to face right. Luis Arise and the uh, Miami Marlins. We're going to talk what we saw from them in Kansas City opening weekend. We're going to look ahead to this Miami series. And then Thursday is Houston coming to town for the home opener. Right. We're also going. We'll, we'll see if it's Thursday. Yeah. I was. Well, <laughs> did you see the St. Paul Saints AAA? I know. Have postponed, although they were supposed to open yesterday at CHS Field. They've pushed that back because right. it's going to be not tomorrow. Great. Tomorrow, yeah, yesterday. <laughs> no? Hi, Abbott. Do you see the mistake you've made? I'm now inventing time travel for the St. Paul Saints. But I also just wanted to say before we get going, because we're going to talk a, a lot of twins. We might even open up. I don't know if we're going to do phone lines. Maybe we'll take some mailbag via what is it? Booth at KFAN. Yeah, but what's uh, what's that thing that the um, the talk uh, back or the whatever? Talk back. I'm afraid of that. Oh no, that's maybe the best. Or people can just tweet me at Aaron Gleeman. Twins questions. We're going to do a couple mailbag segments because that's a staple of our our podcast over the years that we've done. I also just I'm a, I'm a kid from St. Paul. I grew up in Highland Park, uh, and I'm 40 years old. Uh, and so <laughs> the Chad and Barrero days were right in my wheelhouse growing up, listening to that constantly. And in the years since then, Barrero show, and like in the last year or so, I've started to be be a semi regular guest during baseball season talking to Barrero. And that, to me, was so incredibly exciting to be able to come in and talk to someone that I grew up listening to for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of radio to fill in for him. Right. Is kind of incredible to me. Like, if you'd have told me when I was, you know, 14, living uh, on Howell off (laughs) Montreal Avenue in Highland Park, someday Barrera's going to take a little vacation, and you and some weird old guy who you talk to about the Twins three times a week are going to sub for him. I'd have a lot of questions, like, who's this weird old guy? John, his name's John. Okay, well, whatever. But, yeah, so we're, we're very excited to be here. I'm, I'm glad the Twins started 3-0 and and not 0-3 because the tone of this show uh, and the potential calls would be a lot different. I'll be honest with you. I, I would be happy either way for this show. 
Yeah, what we didn't want was one and two, two and one. Is want, yeah, exactly right. I don't want a lot of, uh, we're swimming in the middle here. I want, to, I want to be really high or really low on this team. And, I mean, right now you can't help but be really high, although, you know, as will be pointed out, I think, several times over and over, it was versus the kids. Yes. Was. Now, it was on the road. Yes. So that is always a Something. slightly higher de- degree of difficulty. And, I mean, to be honest, the Marlins, who they're now playing yeah. starting tonight, are, are not a great team, but that's also on the road. And, and the Marlins do have some very good pitching that they're going to see. They have the reigning Cy Young winner that they're going to face uh, on, on Tuesday. But the Royals are not, uh, I was going to say, not a great team. They're not even probably a good team. No. I do think they have some pretty good young hitters that were largely shut down by the Twins. But, yeah, to right. go 3-0 and against them is, you know, let's... Jordan Lyle is starting game. Lyle's is starting game two. Right. Yeah. They, yes. I mean, they have one very good pitcher, Brady Singer, but they pushed him back to the second series because he didn't pitch during the W. He was on Team USA for right. the WBC and didn't pitch. So they felt like he wasn't fully stretched out. So that, that he's their one sort of star caliber right. arm that the Twins well, I mean, got Zach, to not Zach see. Zach Greinke was star caliber. I'm not, I, yeah. He's not right I mean, now, but so was I. Still once I had a lot of upside once I don't, time. I don't remember that. How dare you? John. You've only known me since I was 19, John. <laughs> Yeah. Can you believe that? When I say I've been partnered with this creepy old guy, I was 19 when I first got partnered with him. Uh, so, but I, I here's what I'll say about that. Like, first of all, they can only play sure. who the schedule says. And, right. by the way, they have 10 more games against Kansas City. So right. the idea that, you know, beating up on Kansas City isn't telling. And you can't do a lot better than 3-0. and Right. That's the other thing. They beat them all three. <laughs> right. Like, okay, if they'd have gone 2-1 and one and we'd be saying, oh, they didn't look that great. But I also think the most impressive part of it now in in game three the bats kind of broke out a little bit including obviously joe yellow had a couple of homers almost had a three homer the game bat, the bat broke yes up more so than the bats but overall for the series it was the twins pitching and specifically the starting pitching the bullpen was really good in the first two games too that that really stood out and yes the royals are unlikely to have you know a top five lineup in the american league i do think they have some pretty good young hitters but here's what i'll say about evaluating the pitching there are kind of two ways you can look at pitching performances. You can look at the fact that the starting pitchers, which was Pablo Lopez, Sonny Gray, Joe Ryan, in that order for the three games, gave up one run in, what, 16 and a third innings. That's right. And you can say, well, okay, but they were facing, you know, a glorified triple-A lineup or whatever. Yeah, that's fine. So maybe they would have given up three runs instead of one, either way. But the way I think you can also look at it is you can set aside the results and look at their raw stuff that we saw, not only from those three starting pitchers, but from the bullpen. And you look at Lopez, and he's a guy who threw 93-94 for the Marlins last year. They got The Twins got him in for Luis Rise in that trade. So he's going to be facing his old team in game three of this Marlins series right, that's right, yeah. on uh, Wednesday. But he was throwing 95-96. And, and, and pitching to the guy that tra- we traded for. That's him, true. Yeah. We'll see. If a rise hits a home off, I'm leading off the game. <laughs> Twins Twitter might uh, explode. But that'll be okay. That'll be fun, too. But you can look at Lopez and say he threw five and one-third shutout innings. Went like 85 pitches. Didn't have great fastball command. But he was 95-96 consistently with the fastball, which is a mile or two faster than he was last year. His changeup has always been a great pitch, and it was very effective against the Royals. His changeup has always been his best pitch. Yes, I mean, right. it's one of the best right. changeups in all baseball. And against lefties and righties alike. But what he really showed was a new pitch that he had been kind of tweaking with the help of the Twins coaching staff, which they're calling a sweeper, which is, you can call it a slider, a curveball, whatever. It's a breaking ball that moves more... Uh, Down and away from right-handed batters. Yes, as opposed to kind of a 12-6 curveball, the big burp, 11 big breaking right. curveball. 
this is more of a kind of slider curveball hybrid that is going to go east west a little bit more. And you you've seen it's really the last year or so has kind of taken hold as a lot of analytically oriented coaching staffs and and look at the data and they realize if we can kind of invent this pitch, we can kind of know what the the characteristics are, the movement data, how, where you throw it, how you throw it, and we can almost extrapolate behind the scenes how it will fare against hitters. And then, right. you know, you put it to the test against hitters, and it, he threw it right. like 20 times, and it got, I think, eight swings and misses, no real damage done against it. And so now, with, part, now part of that can just be nobody else has really seen it before. Yes, like, you know, right? absolutely. I mean, not that the Royals are real familiar with Pablo Lopez to begin with. True. Right. But, but, it, but it's, 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 it's interesting to me because it's, it's a weapon against same-sided right. hitters. Now, usually, that is not something that, that pitchers necessarily need, right? Because you're usually better against same-sided right. hitters. Most pitchers have a really good slider that they use right. righty-on-righty or lefty-on-left. That, that's right. Uh, you know, Lopez's best pitch is a, is a change-up. That is usually something that you use against the opposite-handed right. hitters. You may have, now, if people, Twins fans saw it, Frank Viola, uh, Brad Radke, Johan Santana, great changeups. Those were actually more effective against opposite sided hitters than their own side. Exactly. Yeah. So, what's really encouraging about seeing Pablo Lopez de- develop this pitch is that, you know, of the things that he doesn't do well, he does most things pretty well. The, the, the changeup that he has is good enough that it plays versus right handed yeah. and left handers. But, you know, it's almost always going to play, play, play better versus left-handers. And now he has developed this pitch that runs away, literally flees right-handed hitters. <laughs> and uh, that provides him, you know, what weakness he might have shown in the past. Now he's got a new weapon in that, in the, that arsenal. So the, I was in Fort Myers for like three weeks in the middle of spring training. And after his first start for the Twins, or in a Twins uniform, because he left for the WBC shortly after that to pitch for Venezuela. But I said to him, were you throwing two different types of curveballs in this <laughs> right, start? Because right. I was looking at, there's a site called Baseball Savant, which will show you the, the break and the spin rate and all that. And it was clear to me in, that... In real time. Yes, as, as, it happens. as the game is happening. And it was clear to me that it wasn't his normal pitch because all the data was much different than the curveball that he threw at times with the Marlins last year. And he smiled and he said yes. Uh, and he said, what we're trying to do, and it, it's the sweeper that he now fully right. unveiled right. yeah. uh, against Kansas City... And he said, what we're trying to do is, I know my changeup is a really good pitch. Everyone knows my changeup is a really good pitch. I throw it like 35, 40% of the time. <laughs> right, but what right. we're trying to do is not go away from the changeup, but kind of protect it as a, as a go-to pitch and make it more difficult to just kind of uh, approach him if you're a hitter. Because there are hitters, and we saw this against Johan Santana. Johan right. didn't get knocked around much, but when he got knocked around, it was from homers off the changeup. Because some lineups would just say, this guy is too good if we're just going to kind of go along with him. We have yeah. to remove the fastball from our our plans right. and we, just we, focus on the changeup. We just try to fall off the fastball right. so we don't strike out. And we sit on and the changeup. We wait for the And sometimes changeup, he leaves right. the changeup up, right. and if you're sitting on it, you can hit it very far. Yeah, because a changeup is just a slower fastball. Sort of, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And, and so Lopez's point was, I have to be able to show spin whether it's a slider, a sweeper, a curveball, whatever you want to call it, especially to right-handed hitters, but to everyone in general, to make it from like a game theory perspective, make them have three things they have to track or maybe four things they have to track right. instead of just the A-B of fastball changeup. And I think he's already, I mean, we'll see the consistency with which he can throw this newish pitch, you know, command it in the strike zone and all that stuff. But I would say it's so far beyond 
kind of the entry level pitch that he's already using it, you know, 20 times out right. of 85 pitches. He's getting swings and misses. Did he throw it more times than he threw his changeup? Yes, a couple more That's than even the changeup. And he's been, he threw more changeups than any pitcher in baseball last year. He right. threw over a thousand changeups last right. year. And so whether it's Lopez from a stuff perspective, I thought Joe Ryan threw the second hardest pitch he had ever thrown yesterday, 96 miles an hour. Um, a lot of the relievers we saw, I mean, Caleb Theobosh pumping 95 consistently now, which the first time around Caleb Theobosh was throwing about 89. Right. Uh, everybody who came out of that bullpen for the most part was 95 plus with the fastball. And so that gets back to my point at the, at the beginning of this, which was you can judge it by results and you can say, well, the degree of difficulty wasn't that great because Kansas City is not that great. And I'm willing to go along with that. that that's obviously true. Right. But you can also say, well, the fact that he was throwing 96 with his fastball is universal. Right. Like yep. the damage done against it might be higher versus right. the Astros than and, versus. And we saw it throughout spring training. I mean, right. it was the talk of spring yes, training. A in the first, line, the, the especially first, for the starters. The first two weeks of spring training over and over and over again, we were seeing pitchers throwing faster than we had seen them throw before. And to some extent, the question there was, does this mean they're going to be throwing faster in the regular season mm-hmm. too? Or does that just mean that they've gotten up to, up to speed you know, because usually it's beginning of spring training, people's fastballs are down a little bit, and they try to build that up during spring training. Or does it mean that they're just getting there a little faster because they're getting ready for the WBC or what? But what we're seeing is increased velocity and a and a, a starting rotation that looks impressive. And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about last year's Achilles heel, which was the bullpen. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Word from Soda Stick who we just had at our big event uh, the other the other day. Uh, it's baseball season, so guess what they did, Aaron Gleeman? If they're smart, which they are, they restocked all their great baseball <laughs> that stuff. That is correct. Yes. Here's what so, I always say about Soda Stick. It's opening day, home opener coming up. Yeah, you can just go buy a twin shirt like everyone, but you want to be walking around Target Field in a shirt that's creative and sort of a unique design, which is what sure. they specialize in. You want people to go, where did you get that shirt? Right, And exactly, almost right. inevitably, the answer is Soda Stick. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they have the I Got Blown Out of the Metrodome one. They had last year, famously, the Tony Oliva Hitting School, also the Arise 316. You've seen all their designs. I wear that Wiener Winter t-shirt way too much. Yes. The <laughs> Twins players themselves are constantly wearing <laughs> yeah, Soda right. Stick You're shirts right. in the clubhouse. You're I right. can tell you that firsthand. You, yes. So go to Soda Stick, Soda like Minnesota, sodastickco.com, or just Google Soda Stick. Take a look at the website. They have a ton of good baseball stuff. Like you said, it's just been restocked. Right. They also have all Minnesota sports. Super creative, small batch designs. You'll love it. I always challenge people, go to their website. I will guarantee you find at least one thing that you want. And here's the thing. Use the promo code Gleeman, and you can get 15% off your order right now. 15% off using the promo code Gleeman at sodastick.com. The KFN Bradshaw and Bryant text line is live. You can make your voice heard during your favorite KFN show by texting your message to 64686. That is 64686. Standard text message and date rate supply. And welcome back to Gleaming the Geek. They have all our old music. Can you believe that? Jimmy? I know. Yeah, it's been a few years since we've been on uh, KFN. We used to be doing Sunday afternoons post-Twins game. Uh, and now we are strictly podcasting slash Patreoning. Yeah. If you would like to listen to you know more beyond these three and a half hours of Twins talk <laughs> Imagine that. that you're going to see, you're going to have both today and Wednesday... If you are yet more a glutton for punishment, just check out, just Google Gleeman and the Geek. You'll be able to find our podcast or our Patreon yeah. for a lot more. So we mentioned this a little bit last segment, but we'll switch now to the bullpen and talk about them a little bit because 
they also did an exceptional job for most of the Kansas City series. It fell apart a little bit in the third game, but those were also the relievers that they kind of hold back for not key spots. I mean, Giovanni Moran, I think, has a very bright, bright future. Emilio Pagan, mm, I'll let you speak on that. But those were not those guys were the last guys to pitch for a reason, and that was that the Twins were kind of holding them back for spots that weren't high leverage. Cole Sands, the long reliever, was the only of the only one of the thirteen pitchers on the roster who's yet to appear. And by the way, the fact that he—that's kind of the role of a long reliever. Right. I mean, his role is, is to come in and, and help out when you're losing right. games. Right. And yeah, when it's ten to two, right. one way or the other. And so that's hard to predict, obviously. But that's one of the reasons why, for instance, Bailey Ober, who is the sixth guy for a five-man rotation. And ended up, he's now right. at AAA St. Paul, even though he spent the last two years in the majors pitching pretty damn well. But that's why he was not kept as a long reliever in that Cole Sands role is because you, it's very hard to kind of ensure a consistent workload in that role. Right. And for a guy like Cole Sands, who I'm not saying Cole Sands doesn't have upside and, and won't have a solid career, but they don't view Cole Sands as one of their top pitching prospects. He's not sort of a, a building block type of guy. Whereas someone like Bailey Ober or Louis Varlin or Simeon Woods Richardson, some of their better prospects at AAA, could in theory fill a long relief role. And that is a common place to put young starting pitchers. I mean, Johan Santana famously did that for a couple years or three years, a little too long in my book. But he, he, he was a long reliever. You get your feet wet. You show right. you can handle big league hitters, and then you move into the rotation. But I think the fact that they couldn't – they've tried in the past. I remember they did this with Randy Dobnik a few years ago where he was the sixth starter for a five-man rotation. They said, we'll just put him in the bullpen. We'll, he'll keep working as a long reliever, and we'll keep him stretched out, and he'll be ready to start when needed. And then two weeks passed, and there were no blowouts. Right. And it was like, well, we've got to just send him to AAA because this isn't doing anyone any good. So that's why someone like Cole Sands has the long relief job over someone like Bailey Ober or Louis Varlin. But the rest of the bullpen. But, I mean, real quick, though, on Sands, the other thing about that, what what sort of failed with the Dobnik experiment a couple of years ago is, you know, they sort of designated him in that role as opposed to, I think with Sands, it's more of a, we've got about four or five guys that we're going to plug in and out of that role. Right. Like, I, I think whether or not Sands makes an appearance, he could be make an appearance as early as today or more likely Tuesday, <laughs> right, Tuesday right. or well, Thursday <laughs> when the Astros come to town. Yeah. It's got, you know, the games where they, you know, the, the Twins are in real danger of losing He'll, a game. I bet he pitches in that Astros series. <laughs> right, that's right. I mean, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom, but there's going to be some runs scored in that. Right, right exactly. Uh, you know, after that, as soon as he you know goes four innings and gives you just gives your bullpen a little bit of a break, he gets sent down, and one of other three other right, it's you know it's a revolving door. Right, Aaron it, Sanchez or Randy Dobnik or uh, Brent Hedrick, right, right, uh, right. Randy Enriquez if he was healthy. Like there, yeah. there, there's there's a number of guys sitting down at St. Paul that are sort of being, or maybe Jose De Leon. Like there's a bunch of guys who are kind of uh, these guys' role in the majors is probably a fourth or a fifth starter. Or a long reliever, and we're just going to swap each of. The, and and I think you'll, what you'll see is that guy, somebody like uh, like uh, Sands being sent down, whether or not they make an appearance, it's possible that. Geez, it's been six days, yeah. and we he hasn't he hasn't been out there yet. We got to get this guy some work. Let's send him down, and then right. we'll call somebody the, the else. The problem, out. right? They've done that with the last one or two bullpen spots pretty consistently over the last three or four years, which is it's a weird paradox it's like the better and longer you pitch as the last guy in the bullpen right, right. like if cole sands is needed in the third <laughs> inning one of these next few games right. and he pitches four scoreless innings of long relief 
and throw 65 pitches. Right. His, uh, like sort of here's your present for that. Like here's your reward for that is going to be a trip to yeah. St. Paul because the problem is when you do a good job in long relief or even a mediocre job in long relief, you're going to be unavailable for the next right. 48, 72 hours. And then they need somebody in that role. They don't want to play with a 12 man staff right. when they can just send you down. It's not quite fair from a service time standpoint. And it's not a, a justified reward for a guy pitching well but we saw this with like guys like Jarrell Cotton right. last year he'd pitch a couple innings in relief he'd get right. sent to AAA and they'd have a they they want a fresh arm in that role yeah that's right. looking more at the the more traditional part of the bullpen I mean we'll have to get to this next segment but what I was impressed by you know everyone you can look at John Duran throwing 102 103 I mean we saw it last year he's just incredible uh he slept wrong they said um uh, <laughs> I, I heard he was available yesterday. Friday though. night. Yeah. Right. And didn't pitch Saturday. So they had right. Lopez close it out right. because they said he slept wrong. Which, yeah. I, okay. I, uh, I think one of the ways that I was inter- that was interesting about the first three games is how clearly it sort of demonstrated the hierarchy that exists yes. in the bullpen. The pecking order. The, the pecking order was so very clear in that you've got, you know, in the fir- game one, it goes 4 3 2 1, right? From Field Bar. To Lopez, maybe not. Maybe Theobar is actually sort of a little bit of a wild card. I'd, I'd like to right. talk a little bit more about him. Theobar is one of their best relievers, but he's also shown a real ability to kind of put out fires for other right. pitchers. So they're more right. uh, keen on using him with you know two guys on base in the middle of an inning, or or as a weapon. Like uh, in that second game, he pitched the eighth inning versus the middle of the lineup because he had a number of lefties coming right. up, right? And so he he, he can. He can be sort of your eighth inning setup man if you've got a lefty heavy lineup. He can be your fireman in the sixth inning if there's something brewing. Um, you know, he's just he's just a nice left-handed weapon to be able to use when you're facing that side of the plate. But to your point, what we really saw was you know, you're going to try to get five or six innings, occasionally seven innings from a starter. You're going to turn to someone like Thielbar for that sixth, seventh inning zone. Then you're going to turn to Lopez and or Griffin Jacks for that seventh, eighth inning kind of primary setup man zone to get the ball to Duran in the ninth inning. Now, we then saw that flipped around in the second game where Duran was unavailable, so it's hard to draw huge conclusions for that. But Lopez closed it up. I do think they want a sort of dual closer. We've seen that before when they had Taylor Rogers and Sergio Romo. Uh, where now that was a lefty and a righty, so it was a little easier. But they certainly, when they acquired Jorge Lopez from the Orioles, Last August, he immediately took over the closer role with Duran as sort of a sometimes closer, largely setup man. Now, Lopez pitched himself from the closer role to the mop up role because he was just walking too many people right. and he just wasn't very effective. But if he's good, I mean, he was an all star closer for the Orioles when they acquired him. And so I wouldn't be surprised if you see some mixing and matching there. Give guys days off, depending are you facing the three, four, five of a lineup or the eight, nine, one of a lineup? You might go with Lopez at the, for the bottom of the lineup, whereas you might save Duran for the meat of the lineup, wherever that is. But I do think the pecking order in general is going to be Duran is, you know, a cut above everyone. He's going to be their primary closer, but they're also going to use him tie games, you know, the, the highest leverage spots, regardless of save situations. Lopez and Griffin Jacks, I think, are the next step. Uh, and you may see Lopez get some save opportunities like you did already in, in game two. Then you have Caleb Theobar. Right as a kind of Swiss army knife type of guy, he can close, he can set up, he's a lefty, but he can also get righties. But then the biggest key to me is 
someone like Jorge Alcala, right. who before missing most of last season with an elbow problem, showed the potential to be you know, 97, 98 mile an hour with the fastball, with a very good slider against righties, has some question marks against lefties, but he showed the potential to be a 7th or 8th inning. And, and I think it's significant that in the second game, when they knew they didn't have Duran, and they needed a fourth guy, the first guy beyond those, you know, those, right. that, that core four that they had there that they reached to was Alcala. Now they reached to him early. But they reached him, you know, in a, a tricky part of the lineup. Uh, one of the things, you know, you're talking about the hierarchy. And I think most people, when they think of a hierarchy in the bullpen, they think of it as, and I got some questions about this, you know, why was Lopez used in the eighth inning when that's a higher higher leverage situation than the seventh inning, et cetera? I think what we saw in both the first two games when they, you know, really had to use the bullpen and figure out how they were going to do sort the hierarchy is they're still trusting Lopez with the bottom of the lineup. Yes. And they're trusting others with the top or the middle of yes, the lineup. Yes, and that's, right? they use Duran a lot in that way. People go, why would Duran pitch the seventh inning after he had right. long been established as their best reliever last year? Well, because two, three, four, or three, four, five were up. So they're matching, yes, the yeah. role matters and the score matters and the inning matters. But you want to match guys up, not just lefty-righty, but you want Duran facing the best, most right. dangerous part right. of the opposing right. team's lineup. Sometimes that's the seventh inning. Sometimes that's the eighth. Sometimes that's the ninth. So when people were asking, why is Lopez getting the save in game two? Well, did you see who was batting in the, yes. in the ninth inning? I in would game definitely, two? As, as you it watch. It was six, seven, eight. It, you, wasn't, it wasn't one, two, three, four, five. As you watch the bullpen kind of play itself out, pay attention to the score, obviously. Right. Pay attention to the inning, obviously. But also take a look, not just at who's coming up in terms of their handedness. If right. there's a couple lefties okay. coming up, you might see Caleb Thielbar. If it's all righties come up, you might be more likely to see Alcala. But also pay attention to where they are in the lineup and how difficult the matchups are from a just quality of hitter standpoint. And I think that actually will answer a lot of questions that people have on kind of a nightly basis of why is this guy pitching the sixth when he normally pitches the eighth? Well, it's because right. the big the big bats were up in the sixth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when we get back, what do we want to talk about next, Mr. Gleeman? I mean, should we, should we talk a little bit about the hitting at some point? <laughs> Let's talk lineup when we get back. Buxton's off to a start, and boy, was it nice to see Joey Gallo hit. Forgotten Star Brewing was just the host of our opening day party, our opening day watch party uh, last Thursday. 324 people showed up. I was going to say, absolutely they, filled it up. Are they out of beer? <laughs> or they have more for people? I did my share. Yeah, I'm telling you. I, I heard did. some reports about that. Forgotten Star, it's, uh, they've been a relatively long time sponsor. John has, it's like his home away from home at this point. John loves the building, the vibe, the beer itself. Right. The people who run it are great. Right. Like you said, you just did a 300-person event there, and they handled it. It's a great spot. My, my, my daughter looked at looked at the place for her wedding reception, the yeah. events no, the, for their wedding it's, reception. It's right. in Fridley, but it's only like 14, 15 minutes from downtown Minneapolis. Yeah, that's right. It's just up uh, East River Road. It's about this side of 694. So, uh, listen, they've got all this great stuff, and now they've got a su- Sunday night baseball thing going on, where uh, Sunday nights, it's 4 bucks for one of their beers, and you're just watching the Sunday night baseball game, 6 to 9 p.m. Uh, we know some people who like baseball. We know some people who like beer. They should probably just check out Forgotten Star. What do you think? Forgotten Star Brewing. Go check it out. A matchup between two perennial FCS powers, North Dakota State and Eastern Washington, will be played at U.S. Bank Stadium opening weekend of the 2023 college football season, September 2nd. At a KFN.com keyword contest to enter for your chance to win a pair of Delta Club tickets. 
Went to one of those games at Target Field, I think two, three years ago. The NDSU, I think, was facing not a perennial football power. It was the Butler University Bulldogs, who I think had just started Division II football. I got to tell you, it was pretty entertaining. And yes, you can pack a stadium. They packed Target Field that day. It was a, I a saw, good day downtown. I saw St. John's versus St. Thomas. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, they played at Target Field as well. Yeah, I got somehow into a suite and they had alcohol. So I don't really remember what <laughs> happened, but it was interesting to watch the football. It was on played. brand for St. Thomas versus St. John's. Oh, my God. I never <laughs> saw a tailgate situation like this. Because what you had was current There's students. No place to tailgate around there. Oh, believe me. They've found a way because uh, the, just the whole like they had current students who, you know, sure. Tailgate. Yeah. But also there were just like 50 year old dudes who went. Of course. Who was, I, that was who sweet I got into because I know a few of them. And it was like they were like, oh, my God, there's actual current students. Let's go nuts with them because for them, it was the once a year for the right. regular students. Anyway, we're going to talk about the, the lineup. But what stood out was basically the Byron Buxton show during this. I mean, he had two hits yeah. in all three games. He made a number of plays with his legs that, A, no one else could make, and, B, most other people wouldn't even attempt. Right. He stretched a single into a double, took a, <laughs> took yeah. a header in the second base, almost <laughs> knocked his face off, um, but pushed the, pushed the envelope there and got an extra yeah. base on it. Yeah. He hit a triple. Right. And the first triple of the season for the Twins into the right was right center field gap. Okay. That wasn't the prettiest slide either. No, it, was also, it wasn't the nicest uh, dive for att dive attempt to catch the ball either. True, that looked like it hurt uh, as well. But the big one that really stood out to me was Game Two Saturday when he's on third base. Okay, but now what about the play on second base? What about the play on second? The base? second base, he ends up taking third base on that play when he runs in front of runs, oh, yeah. takes third base but that's on a I, ball in front of him. Th now that's what I meant by he attempts to do things right. as a base runner that other people would never even attempt. Now or you sure can, should not ever. Well, attempt. right, but that's the <laughs> right. thing. It's like Good. you know, should most people uh, go out on a random weekday and drink ten beers? And with their wife, and then go home in the morning and do a podcast at eight a.m. No, but John Bonus does that like sure. three, four times well, a week. Some of us are some of us. Right, some you're of special. Us are, right. exactly. You have right. a special yeah. tool it is, set. It's a matter of training. It's a right. special school skill. Right. Set. To John, right. that's just called Wednesday. <laughs> to Byron Buxton, breaking for third on a ball hit to the infield is you start to scream no, 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 yes because right. yeah, that's right. he yeah. got there and it was a bang bang play. Rosario to him. Yeah, yeah. That yeah it's true. Uh, the thing you don't want to see is when Hilberto Celestino last year took right. that same approach yeah, exactly. and it didn't work that well. But, so that's he's on third and Saturday's game. It's uh, I think one nothing at that point. Um, yeah, and right. Kyle Farmer comes off the bench, pinch hits, and hits a very shallow fly ball to center field, and so shallow, in fact, that when <laughs> the camera showed Byron Buxton kind of jogging back to third base to to tag up. I just assumed he's going to bluff a tag because right. that's sort of what that's you what want you to do, do right. in that spot when the ball is barely hit over second base. It's barely to the center fielder. Right. Even the fastest man in the world is generally going to go back to third. You tag up. You try to make a very sudden movement towards home as a bluff or a fake to try to draw a strong throw from the center fielder. And one out of 100 times, maybe that throw goes to the backstop and you get a free run out of it, basically. Right. Instead because he's Byron Buxton and he's incredibly fast and he's willing to take risks. And what I thought really stood out here 
was his instincts on this play and his sort of baseball IQ on this play, which I don't think he gets nearly enough credit for because he's such a fantastic, skilled athlete. Right. I think it's easy to look at a player like Buxton and say, well, he's just everything comes naturally to him, and it does. But I also have been impressed over the years with him making plays like this. And so here's what happened. Kansas City center fielder, Isbell, goes <laughs> to catch it and okay. assumes what I also assume which is that all he's doing is bluffing at third. Right. Catches it flat-footed. Right. Where he's not sort yep. of charging the ball. Right. At which point Buxton says, I'm just going to go for home. Yep. This guy's not prepared for yep. me. He's not realizing it's Byron Buxton. Even with the bad knee, even as a DH kind of ramping up to the season, he could still put the Jets on. And so as soon as he saw their center fielder not getting in position to kind of put his full weight behind the catch in preparation or anticipation for making a throw – he just took off for home and he completely surprised the center fielder who basically just lobbed the ball back into the middle of the infield a little bit. Yeah. The throw, by the way, the ball never got to the plate. No, it never did. It got cut off. It's, uh, Which is uh, incredible. Right, right, right. Like Salvador Perez, the Royals catcher, just stands up with his arms up and is like, what happened here? I think he started sort of lobbing it, then realized it was serious and tried right. to put something behind it. By then it was a little bit too late. I don't know what Isbell's arm situation is. Like, I don't know really I don't think what you bad. expect out of that. Yeah. I, I you know, the Twins have Michael Taylor on their team, who was the center fielder for the Royals last year. True. Yeah. I wondered if Michael Taylor enjoyed, if my, if Michael Taylor enjoyed watching true. that particular thing. Yeah, because like, Michael ah, Taylor has an exceptional away, huh? Yeah, you yeah. traded me away, and now uh, look at this. Here comes the insurance run over there while you guys are lollygagging it into the infield. <laughs> but I was super impressed by that play from Buxton, just from an instinctual level. It's you know, it's combining baseball intelligence, aggressiveness, and obviously being incredibly fast. You need all three parts to make that happen. He he made at least three plays with his legs during the, the opening series that led directly to runs in spots where those runs really mattered right. uh, at the time. Certainly, they really mattered. And what's interesting is he's beginning the season as a designated hitter. He's back there tonight. Right. I just saw the lineup. It's the same as the opening day lineup uh, we just saw get posted. And I know that is worrisome to people. The reason for it is he battled knee problems all last year. He's also just been incredibly injured over the course of his entire career and he's healthy, but they want to kind of ramp him up to the point that hopefully mid season or maybe as soon as next month, he's taking regular time in center field in addition to some time at DH. But for now, at least it's going to be purely DH for him. And I know people go, well, how can you He's a gold glove winning center fielder, right? A healthy Byron Buxton is the greatest center fielder I've personally ever seen. And we've seen some good ones for the Twins right. and against yep. the Twins over the years. How can you take away that value? You're, you're sort of cutting off half his value. Right. And I think that's largely true, but I'll say two things about that. One is this current version of Buxton is not as fast as he used to be. He's 29 instead of 22. He's had knee problems. He's had health problems. He's not at 100% now. They're, they're kind of ramping up to hopefully get that point. So he's a very good and possibly great center fielder now, but he's not the greatest and you just mentioned Michael Taylor, who is a gold glove winning center fielder. If anybody is on the level of Buxton defensively, it's right. Michael Taylor. Right. So there's not a huge drop off defensively. Now, the drop off is by playing Buxton at DH and Taylor in center field, you're basically swapping a normal right. DH bat, yeah. whoever that might be, for Michael Taylor, who's been batting ninth, you know, rightfully for the Twins. He's sure. not much of a hitter. Right. But what I'll also say is, you're taking away what Buxton can do defensively, but you're hoping to have him in the lineup more. And by the way, he started each of the first four games. And I realize that doesn't seem like a lot, but for Byron Buxton, four consecutive games, even at designated <laughs> hitter, right. is noteworthy. Yeah. 
Uh, we, one of the, on our Patreon that we have, one of the things we do regularly is we take... For years, we tried to actually do mailbags at the end of our regular shows. And what ends up talking is we end up talking too much baseball, and we get to the end, and we don't have any time for the mailbag. And so we would promise people a mailbag and never be able to do it. So we finally decided... In the Patreon, one of the things that we're going to be able to do is have all mailbag shows, and the only people who can ask questions are the patrons themselves. Right? Yeah. So this last week we had one, and it, because Buxton is DH, we got a question that I really liked. The question was something like, if you, gave, if you had the choice of having a full season, as many games as you want, of Byron Buxton at DH versus, you know, Buxton in center field for as long as Buxton lasts. Right, you're just taking field. your chances. With, you're just taking your yeah. chances. You know, whether it is 70 games or 90 games or 105 games, whatever right. it is, right? Which would you prefer, right? Well, I mean, the answer statistically is probably we'll take Buxton in center field because Maybe. when you've got, but I think, I mean, you can take a look at it this way. You can say, listen, you've got two spots. You've got center field and DH, right? So would you rather have Buxton? For half a season and Taylor for half a season in center, in center field. field, right? And then your average DH, right? Right, an average, which is usually a pretty good hitter, right? Right? Or would you rather have Buxton as DH and then Taylor in center field for the whole year, right? right? And it's not totally true. It's not totally clear to me which one of those two you choose. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think once upon a time that would have been a real toss up of a question, but I do think that Buxton's hitting has well, improved so much, uh, particularly when... Now, he's had some slumps when he's clearly banged up and right. playing through a significant injury that have dragged down his overall numbers. But I looked over the last four years, he has a 560 slugging percentage over the last four years, <laughs> which is, I think, second or third in all of baseball behind right. like Mike Trout and maybe Aaron Judge. And so once upon a time, I do think this would have been a very interesting debate. But I think if you can somehow guarantee, which obviously you can't, but if you could somehow guarantee you know, 130, 140, 150 games just by making him a pure DH, I do think his offense, his hitting has gotten to the point that it is not just a good hitter. He's a legitimately great power hitter, particularly when, if you can avoid some of the nagging injuries that have dragged down his overall numbers. So this was my point. When that question was asked, I was like, I think I would lean towards the center field yeah. piece of it, right? Just because I... I like watching him play center field. Well, that's, <laughs> that's part of it, right? Yes. Like, I Aesthetically, that, it's right? one of the greatest right. things that's to right. watch. That's right. Then I watched the three games in Kansas City, and I thought, boy, having this in the lineup on an everyday basis, even if I don't get to watch him in center field, even if it means having to watch Mike, Michael Taylor bat every nine batters, sure. which I don't enjoy. Right. Now, you, you, he's, oh, he's fine. He'll Whatever. be fine. I'm, 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 not trying to be, I'm not trying to be able to be critical. Right. Eight homers he is what he is. And what he is is, I mean, they did a nice job of taking a starting center fielder for last year on a bad team, bringing him over and putting him into a position where he can be sort of the backup center fielder. I totally respect that. But one of the things that occurred to me after these three games was something that uh, somebody, Ted, Ted Weedmer, uh, Twins Daily, wrote about, about a month and a half ago. And basically he said, who is the shift, the shift limitations that's going to going on going to help the most? And one of the things he pointed out was everybody talks about how it affects the left-handed hitters, right? Gallo and Kepler and stuff, it's going to help them. The person who has pulled the ball the most in Major League Baseball is Byron Buxton. And what I saw this weekend confirmed it. Like he, where I saw him just not being afraid to having several hits that just go through the left side of the infield. Because you don't have the shortstop back in the back in the grass, you don't have second baseman uh, over there helping things out. Uh, I, 
I just, I think he is, I think one of the reasons we're seeing a better hitter right now is because he's not afraid to just go and pull the ball as hard as he wants that way. I don't think he's ever been afraid by that. Also, he'll be less effective than most because he doesn't hit ground balls usually. Well, you're right. He does hit a lot, he does hit a lot of but what we saw today, what we saw this weekend was the ground balls that he's hitting are getting through. Yeah, but also right-handed hitters don't see the t- same type of shifts that left-handed hitters do. You're not going to see three guys on the left side typically. You're going to see the shortstop deeper, which is a whole different you issue. You see the shortstop a lot deeper and, we, right. and you don't have the you don't have that except you can't have the shortstop. They're not throwing anymore. Buxton out anyway. Well, that's a, from that's deep a, shortstop on a, a hard ground ball to the hole. As, as hard as he hits the ground ball, I think you could get well, a right. pretty decent he, shot at it. He did, I should note, hit into his first double play. It was a bang-bang play, and they actually had to go to replay right. and overturn yeah, the that. initial safe call at first base. It was his first double play grounded into since August 18th, 2020. I was going to say, I remember one a couple of years ago. <laughs> I have two stats on that three years ago. I have two right, stats yeah, on right. that, that that blew my mind. One is, in between grounding into double plays... Byron Buxton hit 55 home runs in between double plays, which is the all time, the his, in the history of baseball. That's the most home runs anybody has ever hit between double plays. Okay. I looked it up. Is that from Stathead? Yeah. Stathead.com. <laughs> uh, and the other stat that was amazing is during that same period from between August 19th, 2020 and uh, two days ago when he grounded into a double play, right. there were five different major leaguers who hit into at least 40 double plays including two who hit 50 or more double plays in the time Buxton had zero and hit 55 homers. Jose Abreu grounded into 52 double plays wow. during a time when Buxton grounded into none and then Vlad Guerrero Jr. grounded into 50. Now, they have well, a that surprised me because both those guys don't strike me as ground ball hitters either. No, but you know slow I mean? right-handed pull hitters. Right, yeah, 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 we'll always hit into a lot of double. Harmon Kilbrew, Michael Kadai are those right, type of guys. Uh, not that those two are in the same character, <laughs> right. but you get the gist <laughs> right, of that. Right, right. But to, to the point that we were just talking about, you know, you remove center field. And I do think the plan that they would like to have is at some point, perhaps as soon as next month, Buxton will start playing some center field. They haven't ruled out him as a center fielder. Right. I'm just somewhat skeptical that once you make him a DH and if it's working well and if he's staying healthy and if Taylor's playing good defense and, you know, holding his own at least at the bottom of the lineup, right. do you really want to mess with that? But I, you're going to see. I, I wonder about that. Do you think we're actually going to have some discussions in mid-May about whether or not they really want to go back to that or whether they want to just keep Buxton at DH. I mean, probably if there's a legitimate argument to be made about that, that means Byron Buxton has been very healthy and very productive at DH. If you're at the point where you're saying, okay, is it safe now to incorporate him back into the defense? But just on this topic, the fact that he can still, first of all, he's become a legitimately great hitter. And I think his overall numbers are exceptional over the last three or four years. It makes him one of the maybe dozen best hitters in the American League. And I actually think those kind of shortchange him because within those overall numbers, there are like two for 40 slumps where his knee has clearly limited him, <laughs> but he's out there. Right. And so if you assume that he can stay healthier on a day-to-day basis as DH, you can kind of eliminate some of those slumps that drag down the overall numbers, and that makes him an even better hitter. And the fact that he can still cause such havoc as a base runner not a base stealer, which he rarely does, although he might a little bit more because we're going to talk later in the show about the rules changes that have caused teams to double their stolen base attempts compared right. to last year with frequency. So maybe Buxton gets in on the act a little bit stealing bases because of that. But for the most part, he's decided it's not worth the health the health risk to try to go from first to second, even though, by the way, he has the best stolen base percentage in the history of Major League Baseball, essentially 90%. 
But he I, doesn't even need to steal bases. <laughs> him going first to third or stretching singles and doubles or stretching doubles into triples or, honestly, tagging up on a 200-foot fly ball to center field when no one else would even have the guts, let alone the wheels, to get that done. Right. You start to see that his impact as a hitter is great. Right. His Over the last three or four years, he looks nothing like the hitter he was when he first came up. And he was just all <laughs> knees and elbows and, well, and swinging at sliders. And, I mean, how silly does it look when we think back to, like, 2017, 2018, where it was like, oh, no, he's going to be somebody who puts the ball in play right. and well, he tries, was... tries to beat things out and so on. Like, he is, I think his body type fools people. People yes. still think he is. Well, people want to take, if, you, if you're the fastest guy in the world, right. people want you to be a leadoff man. And when you're a right. leadoff man, people want you to bunt and hit on the ground and try to beat out infield singles and steal bases. And that works for a lot of players. But when you can hit the ball 450 feet consistently, let it rip. He, he's one of these guys where if you look at his body type and you look at his stats, you've got a better idea of who he is from his stats than from his body uh, type. I feel true. like, you know, what he is is he's a slugger. Yes. Like he's just a pure slugger, a pure right-handed who happens to be slugger. skinny and right. the fastest guy. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Exactly right. And I think that I think that's fooled people throughout his career, right? And I think even fooled Paul the, Molitor, he, by the way. Huh? You mentioned 2017, 2016. Right. Yeah. Paul Molitor, who is in was a Hall of Fame player, right. was a and was back in camp by the way with the Twins because he's a base running guru and right. Rocco Baldelli brought him back in, which I thought was interesting, the man he replaced. He's such a high IQ, kind of beloved, not just locally, but sort of viewed as a guru. And yet he, when he was managing Byron Buxton, looked at exactly what you just said and thought, man, this guy weighs 180 pounds. He's the fastest guy I've ever seen. What we're going to have him do is bunt and hit ground balls and try to beat out singles, and then we're going to have him steal. And at times that looked okay. And hit, and hit the opposite way. Right, yeah, go the opposite way. Right, right, right. And like, somewhere along the line, and he had some injuries, and he was just developing, and there were all kinds of problems with Buxton offensively that kind of short-circuited his. Right. But over the last four years, which I do think coincides with Baldelli taking over as manager and new hitting coaches and just a, a approach to hitters especially that the Twins take, which is play to your strengths. <laughs> if you are incredibly fast, and you weigh a buck ninety, right? But you can hit the crap out of the ball. Go ahead and try to hit. It's just I, hit the crap out of the I ball. Think Let's of, do that. I think of Jose Altuve <laughs> yeah. for the Astros, right. who's about five foot two. Yes, right. And in the minors, he had very little power, but he would hit like three thirty every year. And he got to the majors, and his first couple of years in the majors, he'd hit three hundred, he'd steal bases, and he'd have like four homers. Right. And then at some point, the Astros were like, "You make good contact, you hit line drives." What if we just had you kind of try to elevate the ball? And people were like, well, don't ruin him. You're going to ruin him. Well, what they turned him into is a Hall of Fame caliber player, basically. And so I think that's the progression Buxton has kind of made, which was he can still make an impact with his legs. He can still, like you said, line singles all over the place when he's going well. He's still a stolen base threat when he's feeling good. But they're kind of unleashing the full scope of his power potential right. and not having him feel like he's doing something wrong when he's trying to hit home runs. And if you look, and you I know, wonder if the next step for that is, yeah, you know, just keep him at DH. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, I mean, uh, I, I, it's I, not the I hate worst, it. but I just and I, the problem I, though I, is really over the last, like he's had so many injuries that we need to like, you know, compartmentalize them. Right. But over, let's say his last five injuries, maybe one of them has come defensively in center field. Yeah, maybe. A lot of these he have come. Dives, he runs into the wall. Right, like, but I mean, he he got hurt in Boston last year, sliding into second base. 
She's had a couple of hip problems running the first. Yeah. And now maybe that's wear and tear from diving in center field maybe. and crashing into the right. wall and all that. Right. But, you know, I think this is definitely something that is going to be revisited two weeks from now, three weeks from now, next month, if he's still healthy, if he's still playing well. And by the way, if something happens to Taylor, if he struggles or gets hurt, then you're looking at someone like Nick Gordon in center field or Joey Gallo in center field. Then it maybe becomes a little bit more appealing to push Buxton back into that role on a part-time basis. And we saw him DH plenty last year, but that was more reactive instead of proactive. Last year it was, oh no, his knee's really a problem. Let's try to squeeze the most value out of him we can by having him DH. This year it's, what if we start him out at the DH and maybe keep him at the DH, right. but we'll kind of play it by ear. And so, you know, certainly through one series, the fact that he's back in the lineup for the four straight game, like I said, for most players, that's not a big deal. But the fact that Buxton's in there four consecutive games, that's owed a lot to being a DH instead of being a center fielder slash DH. You referenced Michael Taylor, and then you also referenced the backup plans that we have for Michael Taylor and for Byron Buxton in general. And when we get back, let's talk a little bit about that, because one of the things that has been absolutely a focus of the offseason and apparent in the in the Kansas City Royals series is how the Twins are using their depth and how they went about gathering their depth and how they're using it not just to get past the injury bugaboo that they've had the last couple of years, but to actually make other managers make mistakes during games. We'll talk about that when we get back on, on the fan. We've got a new sponsor, but it's a new sponsor for us, but it's not a new app for me because I discovered Game Time for buying tickets back in 2019. 2019 when the Twins were doing really well, and I think it might have been opening day in 2019. I had been recommended. Somebody said, psst, check out the Game Time app because it's last-minute tickets. Yeah, their specialty is sort of last-minute, last-second, hard-to-find, where you're freaked out, you need the tickets, and it's like, <laughs> I don't know what where to turn to. Turn to Game Time. Uh, it shouldn't be that stressful to get tickets, not only for games, but music, comedy, theater, all that stuff. They have deals on last-minute tickets. They have a best-price guarantee, so you can stop stressing and start getting hyped for the fun you're going to have. And, and for us, if you could just download the Game Time app, then you create an account and use the, com- the code Gleeman, you get 20 bucks off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account. Redeem your code Gleeman, $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Listen to the Power Trip Morning Show week this week for your chance to win a pair of tickets to see Stained at Treasure Island September 9th. Tickets are on sale now. You head to KFA.com keyword calendar for more information. And welcome back to Gleaming and the Geek. I spent the break recovering from advocating that I don't want to see Byron Bucks in the center field. That shook me up a little bit to get to come to that realization here, Gleeman. Weird stuff happens when you get in this radio studio and the mics turn on. You just start to say all kinds of strange things. That's hammered up. The pressure of live uh, radio. That is correct. So you wanted to talk a little bit about the bench, which I thought there were a couple moments. It was just such a focus of the offseason. Right. Uh, you know, uh, we talked a lot. And listen, so much of the offseason was about, you know, getting Correa back, granted, right? Sure. And I think we almost overlooked the fact that they also signed the second best catcher on the free agent market, yeah. Christian Vasquez. So I can't believe like, we're not talking about that at all. But, you know, they went out and they traded for Michael Taylor. They traded for Kyle Farmer. And then they signed Donovan Solano, you know, a week into spring training. Yeah. All three are re- were regulars on kind of crummy teams 
last year, right? Who now have been brought in to be part timers. You know, part timers. Uh, each has you know a, some exceptional skill that uh, that lends right. itself. But they're well limited to the team. as everyday players. But they're limited as like everyday players. We talked about with Taylor. Right. If he's the everyday center fielder, he's somewhat limited. And, and I like that they sort of identified that. If you are a bad team and you've got a player like that on it, it's hard to get any value for that player. Nobody's really right. interested in that player. The good teams don't need that player, right? Because they've and got the, good players. And the other bad and the teams, bad teams aren't, are, giving up. aren't giving up anything for a veteran right. like that that costs a few but, but, you know, for a good team that is looking for depth because they had so many injuries last year, uh, well, I mean, that's perfect. And they ended up, and, and between Michael Taylor's defense and Kyle Farmer's, you know, versatility and ability to hit uh, left-handed pitching and Donovan Solano just barreling up baseballs left yeah. and right. Like, that's a real interesting trio to have on your bench. And then when you use them the same way, even, first of all, it helps when you've got, it's nice to have that when you've got injuries like Polanco suddenly isn't, right. isn't going to be starting, right? The thing is they stockpiled all this depth and, A, you have Buxton now at DH, so Taylor is now the starting center fielder right. until proven otherwise. And then... Kirloff is out and right. Polanco is out. Right. And so now all of a sudden you're having a platoon. Yeah. Your, two infielders, your two infielders and your outfielder are all right. different spots than you thought they were. And you've got two infielders and outfielder right. on the roster. On right. one hand, right. that really makes it very obvious that the depth was needed. Right. The flip side is you'd like to wait a month or two before you had to really <laughs> tap into it. Because now Fair. if another injury happens, then you're digging down to the minors. But what I thought was interesting in the, in the opening series, and we may see it again today because Gordon is... The way to replace Polanco at second base, who's a switch hitter, if you're going to do it with veteran major leaguers as opposed to like Ed Julian or something like that, who I think they, they feel needs a little bit more seasoning at, at AAA, you can essentially replicate what you get from just Polanco via two players in a platoon. Right. And we've seen it so far, which is Nick Gordon has started now each of the first four games at second base because, because they faced a right-handed starting pitcher in all of them. They're actually not going to face a lefty for the first time until Wednesday, the last game of the Miami series, uh, Jesus Lazardo is the okay. lefty. So that's All the right. first chance we'll get to see what is their intended righty-heavy versus lefty lineups. Right. Which, so, by the way, has been a, a a real problem for the Twins yes. for the last th- three years. But it has the, the potential to be a strength. This right, season. yeah, that's right, yeah. But we'll get to that, too. But you faced all righties so far, and that has meant Nick Gordon batting sixth, playing, center, or playing second base because he's a left-handed hitter. But he's platooning with Kyle Farmer at second base, right. who's a right-handed hitter who, like you said, can play. He played shortstop for the Reds. He can play all over the place. And people often just think of a platoon as the starting lineup. When a, left, when a righty's on the mound, Gordon starts because he's a lefty bat. When they face a lefty a couple days from now, you're probably going to see Kyle Farmer or maybe Solano start at second base because they're a righty bat. But platoons also can play out during games. Right. And we saw that in all three games against Kansas City. Right. In the middle innings, fifth, sixth, seventh inning, those are the middle innings. It wasn't late. Yeah, but not saving for the eighth and ninth. Right. right. And I actually think Baldelli getting aggressive there can kind of catch opposing managers a little flat-footed, similar to Buxton and Isbell with a center fielder, where they're not, they're just kind of pressing buttons. And in all three games, the Royals manager, who's a rookie, Brought in a left-handed middle reliever, Amir Garrett, twice, and Ryan Yarborough uh, the third time to face Gordon because Gordon and another lefty, Joey Gallo, who we're going to talk about a lot coming up here, were back-to-back in the lineup, six and seven. 
And so it's very enticing. I think actually Baldelli did this on purpose to entice a manager to say, ooh, there's two lefties coming up. Let me bring in my left-handed middle reliever. Now, the problem from the Royals standpoint is once you do that, you're assuming because it's the fifth or sixth inning right. that Baldelli's not going to unload his bench yet. It's too early for that. But he got aggressive and he did it all three times. Yep. And once the left-handed reliever comes in to face Gordon and Gallo, they have to stay in to face at least three batters. Right. It's the three batter minimum rule, which is in place for the last two or three years. Right. And so Baldelli knows this. And so what did he do? He pinch hit Kyle Farmer for Gordon. And in, on the opening day, he then pinched, <laughs> right. hit Solano for, for Gallo. Gallo. Right. And in the first time they did it on opening day, Farmer walked and then Solano hit an RBI single right. and it increased the lead from one nothing to two nothing and that was huge. Right. Then and, and, and as a result, Amir Garrett, who's the left-handed reliever of the Kansas City, had to face four, he came in to face four right-handed batters right. in a row. He didn't get to face a left-handed batter till they got back to the top of the lineup right. when he's facing uh, Max Kepler. Because what right. it does, the bench having quality right-handed bats or left, like when they face a lefty and Farmer starts at second base, you're then going to have Nick Gordon on the bench as a mid-game move that you can bring a left-handed bat off the bench. Right. Having quality hitters on the bench, especially compared to last year, when their bench was just a disaster. Well, especially in, like, September. Right. But, I mean, it wasn't great all year. But right. it was, And, you know, usually, and I think we've often advocated for this, you know, you want that bench to often be young players that you want to you right. give some at-bats to. Nick Gordon is a good example of the kind of person we liked to see on that bench for a while. But... The problem is that, first of all, those players, if there's injuries, those players end up getting a lot of time. And then if there's injuries on top of injuries, well, now you're already down in AAA dealing with, you know, with, you know Mark Contreras, God bless him, you know, is, right. or Rob like Snyder or like all, the, all these, you know, all these different people that we saw take at-bats in Major League Baseball games during critical parts of the season. And by having good guys on the bench, good, good veteran quality players, particularly with specific skill sets that you can kind of limit their exposure to righties if they're a righty, but you can use them in key spots against lefties. Right. It gives a weapon to Baldelli so that he's the one dictating the matchups ultimately. Like, yes, the opposing manager is the one who brings in the lefty, but he has buttons to push then to kind of push back against that. And if you catch the other team in the right circumstances and you're willing to unload your bench in the sixth inning and play for that spot right there and figure it out after that, right. you can get a left-handed middle reliever in a real bad spot, like you described with Garrett, where he's brought in to face back-to-back -back lefties and instead faces four consecutive righties, and it could have gotten much worse for him on opening day. And so I think the ability to have right-handed bats like Farmer and Solano who thrive when you can match them up against left-handed pitchers right. as starters, as bench players, whatever – and the flip side is when a lefty is starting, you're going to have guys like Gallo or guys like Gordon or someone like Max Kepler or Trevor Larnick, left-handed hitters right. on your bench then against left-handed starters, but they're going to be mid-game weapons then for a Baldelli. And that is such a huge change from what we've seen last year or even in previous years. And I think Baldelli's willingness to get aggressive in the fifth, sixth, or seventh inning and not hold these, these moves back for situations that may never occur. I wonder. I if, think I, is really. Helpful. I wonder if that strategy will change when he's facing different teams. Like it's easy to take a look at the Royals and say, "Boy, they've got this thing about left-handed middle relievers that they tend to pull in, sure. you know, longer relievers and so on." And that seems to be sort of the soft underbelly. That seems to be the time that you want to strike. You know, maybe you're a little more hesitant to do that versus a team that's got a little deeper bullpen. And then maybe maybe you do want to save Kyle Farmer because they've got a good left-handed reliever that you're going to see in the eighth inning, and that's when you want to pull him pull Nick Gordon out. Maybe like I mean that. you're we'll going to you're going to always like they're facing Miami now. They they will definitely focus on 
who are the relievers, where are they likely to pitch, how many lefties are there, you know, what are the tendencies of Miami in terms of when they like to bring them in. The problem with, I agree with you, there are some circumstances where it's the fifth or sixth inning and you're going to let Gordon hit against a lefty because sure. you want to save Solano or Farmer or whoever for a later spot. But the problem with saving him for a later spot is you don't know how that game is going to go. Not right. only do you need the game to still be close, so that's a high leverage opportunity to make up for not using him in the fifth or sixth inning, but you need it to, uh, that specific part of the lineup has to come up in the eighth or ninth inning. Because if it's the top of the lineup, Kyle Farmer's not going to pinch hit for those guys anyway. Right. And if it's the bottom of the lineup, it's not as seamless to pinch hit him for the catcher spot or for Taylor in center field. Then you have to juggle the defense. The beauty of having a Gordon Farmer platoon at second base is you can maximize them offensively, and then you bring in Farmer for the late innings, and he's actually a better defender than Gordon. Yeah, and yeah. Solano at first base, probably not at the level of Gallo, who's a very good defensive first baseman, as we saw, but he's a pretty solid first baseman. You can decide whether or not you're going to use that trump card early or use that trump card right. late, whichever you think. Uh, what do you want to talk about when we get back, Mr. Gleeman? Well, we should probably talk about Joey Gallo at some point. Let's do that. How many that was nice you have to, to see. That was nice. <laughs> to get us to talk about All right. It. Joey Gallo when we get back. But first, let's hear about a cash contest. That's right. The fan and bigdeck.com want to give you a shot at a grand in your hand with our national cash contest. At KFAN.com, enter the keyword grand. That's grand for your shot at that $1,000. KFAN.com, keyword grand. More gl- we have been supporters of Stathead since there. I think that since there's been a Stathead, hundred <laughs> percent. I've been paying for this product long before they became a sponsor, right. and I would pay double, triple. I, I mean, we, we we were big promoters of their original, which was uh, called the Play baseball. Index. Right. That's right. Yeah, baseball that's Reference. Right. Now right. it's Stathead. You can either get it through BaseballReference.com, which is the greatest website in the history of mankind, <laughs> or Stathead.com, which right. they also have. That's it'll right. Take you right to it. And here's what I always say: If you've been reading my tweets. As the opening weekend, and you see all these weird stats that I'm tweeting out. It's the first time since '62 <laughs> right. that they did this. Right, 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 first yeah. time in history, back-to-back shutouts, and all. you go, "How could he possibly know that?" Stathead is yeah. how I know that. It's, I mean, it takes doing database querying into a really simple yes. place. Like, oh, open up this sheet, click on some radio buttons, pull it back, and suddenly you've got the top. Uh, you know, every major league baseball player and how they did versus left-handers over the it's last really, three years. It's yeah, amazing. It's yeah, right, uh, right. You can truly amazing. look up right. anything, and believe me, I put this thing to the test <laughs> in terms of looking up weird stuff. So stathead, stathead.com, or you can get it on Baseball Reference. It's your all-access tool to go inside the entire Baseball Reference database and use the promo code Gleeman when you buy it, and you will get $20 off your annual subscription to any of the Stathead single sports or the all sports, which I subscribe to the all sports because I like to do it for basketball right. too. Um, discounts cannot be applied to monthly subs, but $20 off Stathead.com. Use the promo code Gleeman. home opener is this Thursday and Corey Cove will be hanging out at Cargo Bar inside Target Center 1-3 to three, helping you celebrate the return of baseball to Minneapolis. Come hang out enter to win a great prize One more KFA.com keyword calendar. Hey, welcome back. Gleeman and the Geek. We, uh, we were uh, treated to the first big Joey Gallo performance. In yesterday's game, after a couple games of sluggish hitting, I guess I would say, by the Twins, but at least not a lot of clutch hitting by the Twins, which is maybe something to be concerned about as we go forward. I don't know. Uh, we'll see how the run scoring on this. This isn't a team. This is a team that's missing, you know, Polanco, missing Kirilov. We talked a lot about the depth. The depth is nice, but there's some peak players that were on this team last year. Polanco, Arise, yeah. uh, Kirilov, et cetera, that are missing. 
And one of the replacements for that was supposed to be Joey Gallo, who they were going to help bounce back from about a one and a third real down seasons with mostly the Yankees, a little bit with the Dodgers. Um, (laughs) It's definitely somebody who can be uh, compared to a Miguel Sano type hitter. Uh, left-handed versus right-hander, but somebody who's yeah. maybe low batting average, but somebody who can, when he can make it connects, is going to go a long ways, gets a lot of walks. He's he's polarizing. He's uh, a polarizing figure similar to Sano. I use this stat a lot when I was asked about Gallo when they initially signed him, which is Miguel Sano has the second highest strikeout rate in the history of Major League Baseball in terms of percentage of plate appearances ending in a strikeout. The only player with significant playing time in the majors, who has struck out more often than Miguel Sano is uh, Joey Gallo. <laughs> now, on one hand, it's, it seems cruel for the Twins to do that, <laughs> given the level of frustration associated yeah, with Sano in this fan base. And that's fair. They finally, and I, I, would, I would suggest internally as well. Yeah, sure. They were plenty <laughs> right, frustrated yeah, with right, Sano yeah. the last couple of years, too. And they finally part ways, and you have fans going hallelujah. They're finally going to get a guy who might have some power and doesn't strike out 200 times. And no, they replaced him with a literal 199 career hitter in Joey Gallo, who has the highest strikeout rate in the history of baseball. Now, the thing that differentiates, in my mind, and in the Twins' mind, Gallo from Sano, there are a few things. One is, Gallo is a two-time gold glove winning outfielder. And the metrics agree with the eye test. On Correct. That. Now, you look at him, and he's massive. Not unlike Sano. <laughs> right. He's six foot five. He's, uh, let's call, say, sturdy. And yet... He has an incredible arm. He came up as a third baseman in the Rangers system when Thad Levine was the Rangers assistant GM, current uh, Twins GM. And he's been a great, he's won a gold glove in right, and he's won a gold glove in left. He's occasionally played some center, and now as we've seen, he can play first base very well too. The other thing is, he's he's huge like Sano, but he's a very good athlete. Not that Sano was a bad athlete. Sano no, was he was an exceptional athlete. For his size, right, Sano right, was actually a great right. athlete. Uh, but Joey Gallo has a reputation as a very good, aggressive base runner in addition to the being a great outfielder defensively, and the Twins feel a potentially gold-glove caliber first baseman defensively. Now he's phoned in for, for Alex Kirloff, so that shows his versatility there. But the overall offensive game is, yeah, it's gonna, there's going to be, even in a, Joey Gallo is a two-time All-Star. I should look up <laughs> what, he, what his batting average was. Let me see this. In the, uh, in the two years, he was an all-star. So he was an all-star, by the way, as recently as 2021. He won an all, he, right. he won a gold glove and made an all-star team in 20. It was later that year that things, that he got traded right. to the Yankees and things sort of declined quickly. So he's a two-time all-star and a two-time gold glove winner, and he's only 29. Right. His first all-star season in 2019 for the Rangers, he hit 253. His second all-star season in 2021 with the Rangers and then the Yankees, he batted 199. And so at the risk of being in the preposterous statement tournament, he made the All-Star team in a season when he hit 199. If he hits 225. No, he wasn't hitting 199 no. when he made the All-Star team, just so we're clear. Correct. Right. That was, uh, Do you know what his batting average was for the Rangers when he did make the All-Star team at the All-Star break? At the All-Star break? 223. Yeah. Right. So when I say he can be an All-Star hitting 225, now people are going to scoff at that. And aesthetically, there are there's a certain segment of the fan base that understandably hates that type of hitter. And I get frustrated watching that type of hitter, too. Even in Miguel Sano's very good seasons, right. of which he made an all-star team. He was great in 2019. He was great in 2017 before he got hurt. People still were frustrated by and often criticized him, I felt, unfairly at that time because he would hit 240 or 250. 
but he drew a ton of walks to keep the on-base percentage high, and he had incredible power. He hit 30, 40 homers. Gallo is a similar type of player from the left side in that he's had 100 walk seasons before he's led the league in walks. Before. 111 right. walks in the, the he, year you're talking right. about. So he's an extremely patient hitter. He gets into deep counts, and his strikeouts are not because he's an undisciplined hitter. It's actually because he gets into these deep counts with two strikes, 3-2, three, 3-1, two, three, two, two, and he's only got one shot at a swing to put the ball in play, and he has a high you know, swing and miss rate because right. he's going for power. But right. he, he, doesn't, he doesn't shorten up the swing. He doesn't right. choke up. He doesn't try to take now, it to the opposite field. He's trying to hit it out of the park right. every time he hits a ball, that sees a ball that he is in the zone. David Popkins, the now second-year hitting coach for the Twins, has tried to make some adjustments with Gallo in terms of you know, kind of his batting stance and his approach. They've widened his base a little bit in search of a little bit more contact or a little bit more consistent contact, believing that, you know, you might eliminate 10% of the power in favor of 10% more contact, but there's plenty of power to spare, as we saw. So he goes 0 for 6 with four strikeouts in the first two games, and you go, well, that's the Joey Gallo experience. getting pulled midway through the first game. Although he made a great play at first base to start the 3-2-4 double play, which you don't often see, which got Pablo Lopez out of a big jam. Yes, it did. Then in game three, you saw the highs of Joey Gallo, which was <laughs> right. he almost hit their first homer of the season in the fourth inning. Right. He lined a double off the right center field wall. Certainly had the uh, exit velocity. Yes. just didn't have the I mean, angle, the launch angle. Right, yeah. Then he comes up in the sixth inning, and he does hit their first homer of the season. Basically the same spot, just rips it down the right field line, right. 430 feet or something like that. Then he comes up again in the seventh inning, hits their second homer of the season. Three-run homer and right. even and further. And that was yeah. demolished. Right. So he was about three feet from having the three-homer game. Instead, has to settle for, I think it was 16th career multi-homer game for him. <laughs> and that's the the highs that you're living through the lows to get to. Right. And ultimately, you know, for this to be a successful signing, it's a one-year, $11 million deal. You're betting on a comeback from a player who two years ago was an all-star, four years ago was an all-star, is a good fielder who can play first or the corner spots in the outfield. He's a good base runner. Is he going to hit 275? No. There's almost no scenario where, I mean, if Joey Gallo hits 275, he'll be an MVP candidate. If he hits 250, he'll be an MVP candidate. If he hits 225. Or, or somehow sacrificed all this power. Well, right. Something, I mean, right, something, something will, weird. Something aliens weird. have landed but, on the, I mean, your point is that, that you know, Popkin's adjustments that we're talking about, we're not talking about trying to retool somebody's swing no. here, right? What we're trying to do is just make enough contact so that instead of hitting 200, you're hitting 230 or 225, something like that. You know, that's that's not a huge change to, that's not necessarily a huge change to, a huge adjustment to make. No, and it's more mechanical, it seems, in, than versus approach-wise. Like, approach right. I view as more mental. Like, what are you trying to do at the plate? Are you right. swinging early in counts? Are you going late in counts? This one is, we're going to widen his base, we're going to use his hips more and his legs more. Because as you saw, when he connects, like, Sano had this too, believe me. But when Joey Gallo, connects, the ball just like explodes off his bat. And he just puts swings on the ball that the, the double and the two homers that we saw in game three versus Kansas City. I mean, these balls were just like shot out of a cannon. Right. And, and he has true 99th or 100th percentile power, similar to Sano, but I would say even more so than Sano. And so all you're trying to do is kind of, smooth out mechanically enough so that you can add just a little bit more context so that the, the, the valleys are a little shorter and the peaks are a little higher or a little more, more consistently there. And you know, it's three games in, but it, it is kind of interesting that he started out by saying, by showing the downside, which is might not even put the ball in play a lot of games. Right. But he's, he's shown the upside defensively. Did get on base in game one. Right. Uh, if I would ground ball through the right side, but we should just mention like, 
clearly people don't think that he is changing his approach, right? The teams are still playing him defensively, even with the limited shift. Yeah, Kansas City brought in their right, right fielder, fielder all the way into basically deep second base and right. then shifted over there because you can shift right. with the outfielder still. Yeah. But his approach to the shift has always been and will continue to be even with the limited shifts. I'm going to hit it over or through <laughs> right. the shift. Yeah. He'll I mean, tell you that straight up. Right. I mean, right. he's not going to try to single the ball to third base and do this thing. So what I would caution with Gallo is the batting average is never going to be high. And if you're a fan out there who is obsessed with batting average and strikeouts, you know, I would urge you to consider the fact that <laughs> baseball has kind of moved past that. Now, or get a snack when Gallo's on up. The yeah, that too. <laughs> Just like, don't subject but yourself. To I would, I would, <laughs> it's fine to criticize a guy for hitting 200 or 190, and it's fine to criticize a guy who strikes out, you know, 200 and something times a year. But keep in mind, is he drawing walks? Is he still getting on base? Is he coming through with consistent power when he does have these big games? And is he changing is he, games? Is he an asset defensively? And is he an asset defensively? Because that's, the to me, the, the versatility and the ability to be a plus in the corner outfield spots. And now when he's needed as a fill-in first baseman, because who would be playing first base for them if they right. didn't have him? Right. So I would, I would pay attention to, it's not even the little stuff. It's just not strikeouts and batting average. Right. Pay attention. He does plenty of other big stuff. Pay attention to that and at least balance that against the low batting average, which is going to be inevitable when you're when you're trying to take a you know big picture view of what they're getting from Joey Gallo. When we get back, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the rules changes and in particular the pitch clock, which was a, a hot topic coming into the season, and I think is almost a hotter topic after watching one series of it amongst baseball fans. Let's dive into that and whether or not it has affected your ba- enjoyment of baseball on Glee. And the fan, we are big. We are big fans. Of, uh, of better help uh, because it's something that I think both of us have sort of dealt with. I've certainly dealt with therapy, and one of the things that stopped me from uh, really pursuing therapy when I needed to pursue therapy was the logistics yes. of the therapy. Which the barriers just, for entry, right? I always say. I mean, it's tough enough to convince yourself that you actually want to talk to something, to do something, and instead you're running around going, well, who do you like? You know, and, uh, and then also, you call people and they're like, oh, well, we're booked. There's just you so know, many ugh. hoops you have to jump through. And some right. days you wake up and you think to yourself, today's the day I'm going to get help. Right. And you don't need any speed bumps blocking you from that. <laughs> right. And that's the beauty of BetterHelp. You can use BetterHelp.com. You want to do a video chat with a licensed therapist? Right. You can do that. If you don't want to be on camera, you can do a phone call or a Zoom, right. audio only. If you're like me and you just don't even want to do that, you can do a live chat where all you're doing is typing. They can tailor it to your needs. You can talk to a real licensed therapist. Or maybe you're, maybe you're worried about the cost. It's also much more affordable to yep. be dealing with this way. So, And you can discover your potential with BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp.com slash Gleeman today, and you'll get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Gleeman. And welcome back to Gleam and the Geek. We're talking a little bit about the rules changes, and I think next hour sometime we're going to be doing a uh, uh, some sort of mailbag. Yeah, uh, on this. that's and a staple of our podcast. We like to do mailbag <laughs> episodes. So we, we like thought- to tease people about a mailbag and then ignore the mailbag. Yeah. But you know, if you want to be ignored or actually have a question answered, you could uh, you can text us with uh, at the Bradshaw and Bryant KFN text line. That is six four six eight six. So you just text six four eight six. 64686, your question. And I also wouldn't mind hearing what people think about the pitch clock because I feel like there is, listen, anytime there's a change made to baseball. Yes. <laughs> baseball more so than any other sport. Right. The any, one I always use as an example change, right. is like five years ago, they decided 
we're just going to have managers hold up four with their fingers instead of making a pitcher throw four intentional balls for an intentional walk. Right. And the number of newspaper columnists who freaked out about this and then like literally 10 days later, everyone had forgotten because they realized how absurd that is. Now, obviously, Pitchcock is a bigger change and the shift limitations are a bigger change and even the bigger bases and the pickoff limitations and all the stuff they've instituted this year are a much bigger change. But for some reason, baseball, more so than like adding the three point line in the NBA or whatever it is. Adding the forward pass to football. Right. I feel like there's more freakouts about stuff in baseball. It's almost the default reaction that many people have with baseball. And, and, we, and something like pitch clock, which has been debated right. for years, right. maybe a decade, right? And, and there's been some battles about it between the Players Association, between the owners. It was something that was, you know, do we need to get involved in the collective bargaining agreement? Like it was, it was a, a legitimate point of contention but for a while. Let me say the experience that we just had. <laughs> right before the show. Well, here let me let me preface the experience okay. that you just had. I was on the Common Man show last week mm-hmm. with Brandon before before yeah. Common was when well, Common was out with his surgery, and basically, you know, we start, talked a little bit of a pitch clock, and I assured Brandon that, uh, and he he actually agreed with me because he had gone to some Saints games last year where they tested out right a triple that he was going to love the pitch clock and would barely notice it, and it was going to be it was going to be great. Right. And he said to that effect, yeah, I know Common's already against it. Like right. Common is really opposed so, to this clock. So, so we, we walk, walk in, in here <laughs> at like, you know, 258 or whatever it is. When right. the changeover happens, right. Common's finishing his show. We're coming in to start this show. Common's sticking around to make sure we actually show up is what he was doing. Well, I think that is true, yeah. <laughs> Abbott told him, you might have to do two shows back to back if these doofuses don't show up. But we showed up. We come in on time. Sometimes we come in hot. Sometimes we, you know, we're not always the most prepared, but we show up. Uh, and he says... We're just talking about whatever. And he goes, you know what? I got to tell you guys, I watched more baseball this weekend, all the twins games. And he said, he watched a couple of Cleveland Seattle games too right. late night. He said, I watched more baseball this weekend than I watch in an average season. I and he said, I love the pitch clock. Uh, no, it was, oh yeah, honestly, it was, I effing love. Well, right. I wasn't gonna, I'm a radio professional. I can't say that. And, and his point was what we've said to a lot of people, which is you think you're going to miss the half hour, because the games have been a half hour shorter than the same time last year. You think you're going to miss that, and you think to yourself, well, the beauty of baseball is there's no clock, and the, the tension builds naturally and all that. And that's all true. And I've, right. I've seen people go, well, maybe they should have the pitch clock in the regular season. I love but not the, the timelessness right. of baseball. Yeah. Right. But what you don't realize is it's only become so drawn out with the batter stepping out of the box and taking a little stroll and undoing his batting gloves. And the pitcher getting the ball back from the catcher and, you know, walking in circles around the mound and bending down <laughs> and using the, that that has only become this extreme over the last like eight to 10 years. And I'm going to sound like Grandpa Gleeman here, which is fine. <laughs> but go back and watch a game, not from the 60s, not from the 70s, but like the 90s or even the early 2000s. Right. And you will see that they're moving naturally at a pace that the pitch clock is now trying to force them back into. Right. It's the pitch clock was only needed. Because pitchers and hitters, and I, I do think it's relatively equal blame for this. I, I think the pitchers tend to get the most blame, but yep. that's not been my experience. Stepping out of the box is every bit as damaging as just taking a long time to deliver a pitch. Couldn't agree more. The pitch clock, all it's doing is trying to remove... By the way, we're seeing as many penalties called, or maybe more penalties called on hitters than right. pitchers, right? Well, the only one we saw in the Royals-Twins was Grant, right. on uh, Fran Mill Reyes, the right. Royals-designated hitter, but right. in on opening day, but... All they're trying to do now is eliminate the downtime or the dead air 
the literal spots, 15, 20, 30 seconds past when nothing is happening <laughs> that has really only come into existence over the past decade or so. They're trying to kind of get it back to the way it was. And for me, now, we were both at spring training for weeks on end, and we saw it play out in spring training. We saw the good, the, the pace. Yes. We saw some of the tricky situations right. that popped up, which yep. is why they wanted to institute it in spring training to get people familiar with it. And why they want to have it run during the regular season for six months before we actually get to a right. season with it. Right. right. And, and why they implemented it in AAA last year before they even brought it to the major exactly. leagues. Exactly. Right? Well, and that's the other thing. It's been in the minors now for a year at AAA and two years in the low minors. So as prospects now start to come up right. to the majors, they're used to it. Right. It's only the veteran major leaguers who are really having to adjust. And so... My first impressions, uh, we can go through a lot of the, the rules changes one by one here, but the pitch clock has essentially taken 30 minutes of dead air out of the presentation of the same product. Right. It's the same amount of action. None of the action has been altered. It's just removed 30 minutes of basically filler. And from a pace perspective, now it leaves less time for checking your phone or going to get a beer, or in our case, <laughs> tweeting. But right. That's fine. Those are things that have only become commonplace for baseball fans as sort of a coping mechanism for how long this thing <laughs> yeah, is drawn out. And so I just think a, a two-and-a-half-hour game, which is roughly what we've been seeing now the first weekend, is just so much better than a three-hour and ten-minute game or a three-hour game. Just, it's not shortening the game. It's just getting rid of right. so much... Fluff. Yeah. I guess fluff. And I, fluff's even too kind of a word for right. what it is getting rid of. Like it used to be, I'd be in the, you know, be in the stands and we get to the fifth inning and there's a pitching change in the fifth inning and the new guy gets into a little bit of trouble, runners on first and second one out or something. And now suddenly it goes from 15 seconds a pitch to 45, 60, 90 seconds a right. pitch. And everybody's, everybody's calling just, time and right. everybody's stepping out of the box. Right. And, and, you know, and granted, it's a tense moment, tense time. Like there is, to some extent, the lead is in the balance. It's the lead in the fifth inning. Okay, we can just we can just right. also just play the game right. and not you know well, and all of that stuff is missing. And what I what I was most surprised about the pitch clock, both when I saw it last year with the Saints, and when I saw it again in spring training, and I would follow it up with the games that we've seen here so far, is how little I notice it. Yes. I don't notice it, it. Just blends in. I mean, people are noticing it because. You the know, clock announcers, is there. announcers yeah. are focusing on it, and they're showing the, the clock as something like, hey, by the way, this there's this thing going on right now, and you should all be aware of it because the players are being aware of it, and we're all getting used to it, and blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, is that what I, when I was actually at a Saints game last year, and that wasn't going on, I just noticed that the game seemed to be moving right. pretty well, and it ended in a decent time. Well, and here's the other thing that we saw this opening series especially, but we saw this a lot during spring training in Fort Myers too, which is the majority of pitches – are being delivered with five to eight seconds left on the pitch clock. These are not buzzer-beating pitches. Right. These are not right. circumstances when right. the pitcher is going, oh, crap, I better throw. Right. For the most part, even guys who work relatively slow, which the Twins have quite a few of those pitchers, they're, you know, Sonny Gray is delivering pitches with <laughs> six, seven, eight seconds left right. on the clock. Which means there's at least 10 seconds between pitches. Well, right, but also right. there's leeway. It's not actually altering, and as, as people get more comfortable with it, right. it's going to blend in even more, and pitchers are going to – get their kind of natural timing mechanism so that they're del they're not so afraid of a violation two months into the season because they've now worked with it for a while. I think now there's a fear of let me get it and throw it, which is why you're seeing a lot of pitches with six, seven, eight seconds left. I think it's going to be closer to two, three seconds left because there's going to be more of a rhythm established. And that actually might add a couple of minutes back to games. It, it won't be quite as, as 
fast pace, but you know, I think just in general, the games are faster. The pace is better. There's less downtime. I think it's going to be something. And by the way, there's, there were fewer, an average of 0.8 violations per game across Major League Baseball. <laughs> right. We only saw one in that's three after, games. That's after five weeks of spring training. Right. So right. imagine yeah, right. in June or July, right. let alone in October for the playoffs. Right. Uh, you know, you're going to see very few violations in key spots. And here's what I would say to people who are worried that, you know, game seven of the World Series, tie game, extra innings, there's going to be some violation that decides it. By that point, everyone involved will have played under these rules yeah. for seven or eight months. Uh, if they and say it to yourself, as it's happening, could this all have been avoided if someone from the dugout had just shouted, "Get in the box! <laughs> Get in the box! Right! Throw the pitch!" That's all it is, and <laughs> right. it's not really affecting that much unless you specifically go out of your way to step out of the box and Velcro your batting gloves. And, and I get that everyone's so used to that. So it's going to be a hard habit to break, but I'm, I'm overwhelmingly, I was in favor of the pitch clock before we saw it play out in spring training, but now having seen it for three or four weeks in Fort Myers and now these first weekend uh, in major league baseball, I'm, Overwhelmingly in favor of they the should have made the change ten years ago, maybe. Well, but they didn't need it ten, right. fifteen years. Well, yeah. I mean, look. You're right. You're if you right. look you're at right. the, right. you know, it, the, the time of game started to creep up in the early two thousands, but it really over the last five to ten years has has been crazy. Okay. One, one, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm final point on that, similar to the common man, right? The people that end up enjoying this change are exactly the people who hate every other change right. to a baseball. The old schoolers right. <laughs> think they're going right. to hate it, but then they realize this is more approximating the baseball they grew up watching. Right. I mean, Thomas so, Boswell of the Washington Post wrote a story last week basically saying, you know, to some extent, I was ready to give up on baseball last year as the games were approaching three and a half hours every night. Right. And now instead, this feels like I'm watching baseball in the 50s and 60s yeah. and 70s. And in fact, that's what the timing looks like. The timing looks like uh, they're back to like pre-1983 baseball, which is just stunningly, yeah. stunningly much more entertaining. Okay, so a couple other things on some of the other rules that we've seen. Um, the shift limitations, and I, I always call it a sh- it's not a shift ban. <laughs> You're still going to see tons of shifts. Right. But you can only have two infielders on each side of second base. You have to have two infielders on each side of the literal second base bag. Splits the field right. in half. But And I think the bigger change is, you can't have uh, you can't have any of the infielders playing in the grass, right? So you can't play a guy in short right field. I didn't field. think that was the bigger change earlier. I think that as I watch baseball now, to me, that is the bigger change of the two. I mean, you you could see it with the Twins' defense against the Royals, which is Carlos Correa made a great sprawling play on the first base side of second base right. and threw the guy out. And you think, well, isn't he wasn't he banned from doing that? Well, no, because he started to play one inch on the shortstop side <laughs> right. of second base, right. and then the ball was hit. And you can you know you can still play right up the middle. You know, right. when, a, when a line drive gets hit up the middle, you still should not be anticipating a guaranteed single in those spots. Correct. That just means the third baseman is going to have to cover a larger percentage of the left side. And Correct. it means that you can't put the shortstop where the second baseman is. You can only put the shortstop, you know, in short center field. But, yeah, I mean, I think limiting where you can stand to start the play so that you have to be on the dirt for a guy like Correa, especially who isn't the fastest shortstop, but he's huge physically and he has an exceptional arm. So he wanted to play as deep as he could believing that it that expands his range and if he can get to the ball he has the arm strength to get it to first no matter where he is right and so that that shrinks his range a little bit but i just you know there were so many people who were it like, does it just shrinks his range a little bit right. but it, it, it's a little bit that's 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 the difference right, right. 
And it was, was, probably, it was probably an adjustment for him, too. But there were so many people who looked at it and really had convinced themselves that shifts were no longer going to be in play. And we saw so, I saw so many shifts watching games this weekend. They were just right. slightly extreme, not the most extreme shifts. And, you know, there were people who were kind of dreaming on, oh, Max Kepler with no shifts. It's just going to be amazing. All 100 ground balls that he hits to second base, those are all going to be hits. Right. Joey Gallo said, no. I mean, Max Kepler's 0 for 13. We see why. <laughs> Max Kepler will be helped by fewer shifts. Sure. Just like all left-handed hitters will be helped by fewer shifts. But Max Kepler's problem wasn't the ground balls that he hit to second base. I mean, he hits too many of those. They're just the pop-ups to third base, the pop-ups to short right field. And, we, and we've seen that now uh, over the first few games. The other change is they increase the size of the bases themselves to decrease the amount of distance that needs to be traveled on a stolen base right? to try to, you know, and you, you look at, it's not that, you know, it's a couple right. inches on yeah. both sides. Yeah. yeah. These are not, you, you from the stand, you can't tell that they right. are bigger bases. Right. But think of all the bang, bang plays on a steal of second that sure. happened. And if right. you're decreasing the distance traveled by a foot yeah. or a half a foot, even right. you, some of those bang, bang plays turned into safe steals. They also have limited the number of times that you can disengage or throw over if you're a pitcher. Once you do it twice, you know, either if you just step off the mound or if you actually try to pick somebody off, once you've done that twice to the same base runner at the same base, doing it a third time, you can still do it a third time and you can pick them off. But if you don't pick them off, it's a, it's like a block. Yes. It's like a block. They go to second base. So is it just that runner though? It's just that runner, right? If there's runners on first and third, uh, don't, they both don't. don't both yeah, I don't go. think the guy scores from I don't third. Think so. yeah. And so, looking at the early data, and again, it's skewed because it's cold weather. You're seeing the top of everyone's rotation, so it's going to be low, lower scoring than a normal uh, sample size or whatever. But right. looking at the first, I don't know, fifty games or whatever have been played at this point, almost twice as many stolen base attempts compared to last year at this time. And here's the big jump. Generally, the break-even point for steals is somewhere between it's somewhere around seventy-five percent. Like where just for an average player in an average spot, right. is it worth it to attempt it? You got to be about three quarters of the time. You got to be safe to make it worthwhile, right. and that's a sliding scale. If it's a really close game, that drops all that stuff. Correct. Generally, the league average rate is somewhere in the low seventies, seventy-two percent, seventy-three percent. It's like eighty-five percent. Right so far this year uh, on twice as many steals. No, it's not exactly 1968 again where everybody's running like crazy. Right. You're still getting each team is averaging fewer than one stolen base. The Twins, by the way, haven't attempted a steal yet through three games. Uh, but I was just going to say, this is not a good development for the Twins. Yeah. I mean, it's not a good development for them offensively. If, they, if everybody else has this weapon that they themselves don't really use and really can't use. Like this team is right. not built. You know, Michael Taylor might steal you a base occasionally. Uh, I mean, you're going to see Kepler. Kep, guys like Kepler run a little bit more bucks than occasionally maybe, but they did try to counteract that from a defensive standpoint by bringing in Christian Vasquez, who's one of the better throwing catchers in baseball. They did, but they still have Jeffers on the team. Right. Uh, so I think that is going to also lead to a more entertaining action filled product. Yeah. More steals. People like see. I yeah. agree. And. I think the pitch clock is going to decrease eventually. will decrease strikeout rate a little bit, so you have more balls put in play. And because of the shift limitations, more of the balls put in play are going to find holes to be singles. And what people really want when you ask them what has kind of pushed people away from baseball aesthetically, the pace of play, which is now fixed essentially, and then they want more action. And what they really mean by that often is more singles and more stolen bases. 
And I do think we're definitely seeing more stolen bases already because of the rules they put in. And I do think we're going to see more singles combination of pitchers having to work quicker will lead to fewer strikeouts and then more balls in play will turn into more singles because the shift. So I think, you know, are the, are the rules changes perfect? We need to see more. We need to see what the actual impact of some of this stuff is, but I think they're really made some drastic improvements immediately. Yeah. Like we're right. barely into this thing. And yeah. you could tell during spring training that they're, you know, are they fixing baseball so that some 16 year old kid is going to be more likely to watch a baseball game than an NFL game all of a sudden? No, <laughs> but they've, they've greatly to me improved the product like almost immediately with no real changes that are going to like wreck the game itself. Uh, and so I think that, I mean, that should be commended. We should also point out by the way, Kansas city hit 28 ground balls in three games and the twins turned 27 of them into an out. So you're limited with what you can do on shifts, yeah. but you can still play the percentages and put people in position. And obviously, if and, that, and that's without having a great infield defense, just so we're clear. I, yeah, mean, I mean, Gallo, Correa got a lot of those Gallo balls. Think, I mean, Correa's, Correa's been fantastic. Miranda at third base. Solid. Missed, I would say he missed one play. Yeah, that he right. made an error on. Right, made basically two errors on one play. Uh, bobbled <laughs> right. it and then bobbled yeah. again. But um, let's see. There was one other thing. Uh, oh, here's I have one prediction on that. We saw it a little bit during the Kansas City series. There's limits to how often a batter or a pitcher can call time, but there's not limits to how many times you can tell the umpire, "I need a second because the pitch com device, which is in a the helmet, <laughs> right, yeah, uh, the, right. the the hat of a pitcher." Is is malfunctioning? Right, right. I think that's going to be a very popular. We're going to see pitch com malfunctions quadruple compared to last <laughs> year because they're going to view it as a way to get well, time. We also saw in spring training where you know the catcher holds onto the ball a little bit because the pitch clock doesn't start until the pitcher right. has the ball. Right, so you're not seeing the umpire throw the ball to the pitcher as much. Instead, nope. I'm going to give it to the catcher, and the catcher might hang on to it for a second, two, three. Give the give the catcher wait until he gets back on the mound. Doesn't want to throw it to him when he's still halfway, you know, five, six feet off the mound. Yeah, you know, because you want to be careful of that time. It's, there's a, right. there's a you're incentivized to be very deliberate in your actions right. when clocks start at certain points, right. and I think we're going to see that too. So uh, I don't know. We we mentioned Max Kepler in the leadoff spot. I would say that is a good. We'll come back. Come back he's talk, back in the leadoff spot tonight. Time. I should I should mention that I did get a uh, text from Matt Matthew Trueblood, mm-hmm. who's our baseball uh, expert. Uh, all adva- all runners advance if you end up doing okay. the third the third one there, not not just the uh, not just the one you throw it to. Uh, yeah, so when we get back, let's you know, let's talk about the leadoff spot because there's a Max. If you're listening to this, this would be the time to, to change stations <laughs> or just put some earmuffs on or whatever it is. Well, he's, he's gonna have to go watch Luis Arise and get compared to him yeah, for the well, whole series. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> all right, when we get back. Let's talk about Luis Arise and Max Kepler and leading off. The fan. From the Bradley and Bryant KFAN text line. Bradshaw and Bryant. I'm sorry, what did I say? Brad, Bradley, Bradshaw and Bryant, KFAN text line. 64686 if you've got some questions. We got a question on Mr. Max Kepler. Poor Max. Max is, has a slow start to the season. People are questioning why he should be leadoff hitter. I mean, let's put it in context here. I've had a slow start 40 years <laughs> to my life. Max Kepler is uh, a guy who makes $10 million a year. He's incredibly good looking. He's in great shape. 
He's well liked by all his teammates. Yeah, the guy has a low batting average, and he hasn't really produced for a couple of years. But you know, let's the woe is me. Let let me put it this way: If you said to him, Max, would you like to swap lives with John Bonus? Now, keep in mind, you get to co- you get to co-host fill in for Dan Barrero twice in the same That's week. That's fair. Yeah, could you be a better leadoff hitter? That's the question. I know you have the speed that everyone looks for in the leadoff spot. Versus left-handers, maybe. Yeah. Uh, wait, so what? Okay, read the. There were a lot of. We just picked one of many questions the, about Max the, Kepler. Yeah, the one that says is Kepler on the hot seat, or does the Kirilov injury, which forces Gallo to first, keep him off of the hot seat? Right. So I thought they were going to trade Max Kepler this offseason. Yes. Um, we all thought they were going to trade Max. Kepler. Particularly once they signed Gallo, Gallo. Right. and added him to what was already a plentiful left-handed hitting corner outfield first base DH mix. But then they traded Luis Arise for Pablo Lopez. Yep. And that kind of reopened the door for Kepler to be their primary right fielder. I also think they were openly willing to trade Kepler. And I talked to a Twins official or two who said there was interest in him. But for whatever reason, they didn't like the offers that they were getting. I'm going to guess the offers weren't particularly amazing, but who knows? And it always they, felt to me like what they were searching for was something that was going to help their team right. this year. A reliever or something right. like that. And what the offers that they were getting is the kind of the offers that you're much more likely to get during the yeah. offseason, which is random low, yeah, we've low got a, a, got a, a double a prospect or something right. like that, that, you know, you like a little bit more than the team that has him likes. Right. Know? And you know, Kepler's the tied for the longest tenured twin with Polanco at this right. point. Yeah. He's a very good right fielder defensively. Uh, they, and he's been in the organization since he was 16, right? right. Yeah, like right. 12 years or something right. like that. Um, they had some hope that the shift stuff that we just talked about could benefit him a little bit. They also thought he's been banged up the last year or two, so maybe healthier. He, could. But, you know, I don't think they were under the impression that Kepler was going to return to the 2019 version that we saw where he was an all-star caliber player hitting 30 home runs, batting not, 250. Not, not, not unless the ball returns to the 2019 right. juiced right. baseball. But he is an interesting guy. We talked so much about strikeouts with Gallo and Sano earlier, and people hate strikeouts and hate low batting <laughs> right. average, but right. it's funny that... Max Kepler has a lower career batting average than Miguel Sano, but does not get, or at least used to not get, the same type of criticism for his low batting average because Max Kepler doesn't strike out much. Right. And it's that kind of blows people's minds when you see a 220 or 215 batting average from a guy who actually puts the ball in play a fair amount. But as we talked about, and that's why people assumed Kepler would be really helped by the shift, and he may still benefit from it. But Kepler, the quality of the balls that Kepler puts in play has always been among the lowest in all of baseball. Because when he's not hitting home runs, he grounds out to second, he pops up to third base or shallow to the outfield. Or there's a lot of warning track fly balls. Right. He he hits so many balls that are 99% outs. And so the value of putting the ball in play is not that much higher a lot of the time than just striking out. And so... Aesthetically, people look at Sano going 0 for 4 with three strikeouts and they go, what a bum, that was a terrible game. Whereas they might look at Max Kepler going 0 for 4 with no strikeouts and say, well, at least he put the ball in play. And if this, you know, another foot here, another foot there, they made a great play to turn it into an out, all that. There's always this room for optimism when you're putting the ball in play. Right. Now, why is he batting leadoff, which is the question that we've he, got? He also, he also brings some other things to the table. He's a really good defensive right fielder. That's not... Yeah, I said that right. good, good base runner. You should I mean. listen to the show. <laughs> uh, but wh- why is he hitting leadoff? Here's why he's hitting leadoff. They don't have another good leadoff. <laughs> right, hitter. right. I mean, no matter who they put in leadoff versus a right-handed right. pitcher, 
your question is going to be, why is he hitting leadoff? Right. I mean, Gallo is the guy they toyed with and used at the right. leadoff spot throughout spring training, and, and people's you, you brains would have <laughs> blown up if a 199 right. career hitter exactly. was batting leadoff. Right. The highest strikeout rate in baseball history is batting leadoff. You may still see some of that. Right. Now, Nick Gordon. Nick Gordon could have batted leadoff, but Nick Gordon has been a quality major league hitter for exactly one half of one season. Right. And I'm a Nick Gordon believer. I think right. he's legit. By the way, he also doesn't have a hit this year. Right. So. Well, yeah, he's over <laughs> right. eight or whatever. Right. I think against right-handed pitchers, they want to use a lefty in the leadoff spot because they know that they're going to have Correa second, likely Buxton third, and they also know that Miranda is either going to be adding fourth or fifth. Right. Now, they've used Larnick in the cleanup spot, and he's actually looked good so far. But even that is coming out of spring training. The idea of Larnick, who's not exactly been an established quality yeah. major leaguer because of some injuries, as your cleanup guy, drew that, a lot of looks. That might be my biggest positive surprise right. so far from what we have seen. A, that they are trusting Larnick with the cleanup spot, mm-hmm. and B, that it's working. Well, like, but, but here's the thing. First of all, it's only three games. Right, but, good. but with Larnick, the key has always been he he takes good at bats. He can drive the ball to all fields. I definitely think he has the you know 265 batting average with 25 homers and a lot of walks profile as a hitter, and he's shown that for long stretches. Right. Until he's gotten injured in the middle of both of his seasons. Correct. And he's tried to play through the injuries, and his performance has been so abysmal for the month or so he he tries to play through an injury that it drags his overall numbers down to nothingness. And then you look at him at the end of the season, and you go, we had like a 660 OPS. That's terrible. Right. But it was really an 850 OPS followed by a 400 OPS. Right. And so, right. yes, he if he can stay healthy... This is the guy we saw in Kansas City is much closer to the type of hitter that he can be than what his overall numbers suggest. But you're not going to bat Larnick in the leadoff spot because you need him in the middle. Now, right. if Gallo starts hitting really well, Gallo can be in a middle of the lineup type of guy. But this is where they miss Arise, obviously, right. who was an ideal leadoff man because he had a great on base percentage. But that's how you got Pablo Lopez, who's looked pretty good so far. And this is also where I believe you miss Polanco, Polanco. because Polanco, yeah. as a switch hitter with some speed, the ability to put the ball in play. Gap power and just a, a good at bat would have been an ideal leadoff solution for this type of lineup that is now all of a sudden very right-handed heavy because he's a switch hitter. So I also think they have some prospects: Edward Julian, who's an you know an on-base machine, who's now at AAA. Royce Lewis, if yep. healthy, profiles as a potential leadoff guy. Austin Martin, same thing. Honestly, even Austin Brooks, Martin, I was very excited about being a leadoff guy. Yeah. Now, now we should now he's hurt. He has an elbow right, yeah, and yeah. Brooks Lee. Their number right. one prospect could potentially, at least early in his career, be the leadoff type of switch hitter. But all those guys are in the minors right now. Right. And Alex Kirloff's hurt and Polanco's hurt, and they're trying to get a sense of where Gallo is at compared to last year. And so what and you I mean, end just up based with... based on what we've seen from him so far, you see why you don't necessarily want right. him leading off. Right. <laughs> right. So what you end up with is Max Kepler. They're turning back the clock to 2019, which was one of the first things Baldelli did when he took over as manager. He said... Kepler's going to be the leadoff man, and I know that's going to rub people wrong, but I think he's got it in him, and he went and had a breakout year. He was okay in the leadoff spot in 2020, but then his production really started to to decline, at which point they swapped him out for the most part with a rise. Now, you could do some other things. You could put Buxton in the leadoff spot, have Correa still bat second, put Larnick third instead of fourth, and just have Miranda bat fourth. Yep. But then all you're doing is putting Kepler either fifth, sixth, seventh, which right. is still a key spot. I mean, right. I, but it's not as key as first. Correct. And, it, and it's, that, that's where it's I'm not kind, as that, headline that's grabbing. That's kind of where I'm going. No, I, I agree. Thing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think basically you're moving everybody up a lot, up right. one and then, and then sliding Kepler in someplace. Right. Right. 
their best hitters are right-handed hitters. I mean, their three best hitters right now, most likely, are in some order Correa, Buxton, and Miranda. Now, Larnick has the potential. Gallo has the potential. Polanco, if healthy, has the potential to be one of those guys. But right now, Julie, as we say, well, right, but he's <laughs> hitting 140 for the Saints right now. Um, but I don't think their plan is to have Kepler be the, the leadoff man for the bulk of this season. I think they would like Polanco in that role. They would like Julian in that role. They would like Royce Lewis in that role. I actually think if Gallo would have had a better spring, Gallo might have been in that role, right. in which case people would be uh, freaking out about that. Sending too, texts sure. about how can you Absolutely. have a 198. Right. So there isn't an ideal fit, which obviously magnifies the decision to trade Luis Arise. Nick Gordon is is the key, the X factor here, right? I mean, if Nick, Gordon, if Nick Gordon ends up coming through and hitting like we think he can hit right-handers, becomes yeah. that player, he looks like a an interesting leadoff bat option, Although, right? The way he hit in the second half last year is more like a number five hitter than a number well, it's one. True. Hitter. I mean, yeah, it's true. He doesn't draw a lot of walks, but it's he's true. he's got speed. He's certainly aggressive at the plate. Right. He's not patient at the right. plate, right? So I, I think but, but he, he can do things on the base paths. They're yeah. kind of trying to. And look, I'm as you may have been able to tell over these last ten minutes, I'm not a believer in Max Kepler at this point. Uh, you know, two years ago, I looked at his performance and some of the underlying metrics. And I wrote a big long thing about it at the time. It was more controversial because he hadn't had two or three struggle years at that point. I, I just believe he's generally not overrated, but people perceive him as being closer to a bounce back than he actually is because they look at a low strikeout guy who's a good athlete and is capable of putting a really good swing on the ball. And they go, it has to click for him, but we're seven years in and he has the lowest batting average on balls in play in the history of Major League Baseball, I think, for a left-handed hitter. It's it's not going to click for him. But he still draws some walks. You know, he, obviously going over 13 is going to make anybody look bad. Sure, He's going to sure, sure. rebound from that to some extent. But, you know, if you're saying to yourself, why do the Twins have Max Kepler in the leadoff spot? It's not because they arrived at spring training and Rocco Baldelli said, I got to find a way to get Max Kepler back in the leadoff spot. <laughs> right. It's because they looked around and they said, somebody has to bat first. Somebody's got to bat first. <laughs> right. And right. for now, right. at least, yeah. it's going to be Max Kepler. If he doesn't produce, is that still the case next month? Probably not. And even if he does produce reasonably okay by his standards, I do think by midseason, they would love for Ed Julian or a healthy Royce Lewis or a healthy Austin Martin or Jorge Polanco, if he's able to come back from his knee problem, batting atop the lineup. And I think if you can get that situation worked out with somebody, a legitimate left-handed or switch hitter at the top of that lineup, going then into Correa, Buxton, Larnick, right. maybe Kirilov at some point, and Miranda, and maybe Gallo, you really could have something. Yeah, I mean, that that is the... That is the hope for this offense. If there's a concern right now, I think we entered the season, we talked about it, my biggest concern was the lineup, Yeah, right? It's still three games into it is still my biggest concern from what I've seen. That's yeah. three games, but, you know. Uh, but it'll be interesting. But They do have a lot of depth that they can draw. They've got a lot of options in the minor leagues that they can come from, and they've got some guys that are healthy that are unhealthy that they're hoping they can come back and take care of that. When we get back, I want to talk just real briefly on the Twins' second biggest move of the offseason, which we basically have ignored and not talked about at all, and that has to do with their catching situation. We'll talk about that in Gleaming of the Geek when we get back. One more thing before we leave. The fan and BigTech.com want to give you a shot at a grand in your hand with a national cash contest. Head to KFAN.com and the keyword bank. That is bank for your shot at $1,000. KFAN.com. Fan.
Welcome back to Gleaming and the Geek. We talked a little bit before we left about it was a crazy offseason dominated by the Correa return. Uh, an unforeseen turn of events, several unforeseen turn of events that led to Twins somehow ending up with one of the premier yeah. free agents on it, the market. It was dominated by two exits and a return <laughs> yeah, by yeah, Carlos right, right. Really three, kind of. <laughs> well, right. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, at the beginning of the offseason, one of the things they did is they signed the second best free uh, market, uh, catcher on the free agent market, Christian Vasquez, uh, who, you know, a, can hit a little bit, but also is known specifically for his defense, both his framing and his ability to throw out runners, which is something that the Twins struggled with. And just has a very, this is not you know, quantifiable as easily, but just has a very good rep as sort of a handler of pitchers. Correct. Beyond yeah. framing, you know, calling pitches. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, he was the Red Sox catcher for a long time. He was a starting catcher on their World Series team in what? Five years ago or so, right. he also won a World Series with the Astros this past October. Although he was kind of a part timer yeah. with the Astros, he was but the backup. Three years, thirty million for him. Other, like you said, other than Wilson Contreras, who got like two and a half times that <laughs> right. much from the Cardinals, he was. I viewed him as the premier catcher on the market. They made that move pretty early in the offseason, Certainly at a point where it was safe to for them to assume. They weren't going to have Correa back. Right. And so they were at a point where they were like, we need to move forward as much as we can here and check some of the boxes that we really feel like we need to check. We talked earlier about how a lot of that was about surrounding depth. Yeah. Uh, they traded for Kyle Farmer right away as kind of a placeholder shortstop. Yep. If Correa didn't come back. Catcher was a spot that, you know, we kind of, we kind of wondered if they would get a backup and have Jeffers be the right. starter, right? We were looking at, you know, they went through the second half of last year with Sandy Leone, uh, who's, you know, yeah. journeyman, you know, low uh, 30 some year old yeah, I mean, left handed. Sandy Leone. Right. Great defender. Very well liked. Could never hit. Right. And there were times last year. I mean, he actually ended up having knee surgery after the season. But like, I remember I talked to him about something in the clubhouse after a game one time. And he, I've never seen a human with more ice on a body part than he had on his knees. And he had them on both knees. Right. Uh, right and so, right, right, you know, they obviously Gary Sanchez ended up catching a lot more games right. than they anticipated. Gary yes. Sanchez just signed a minor league deal with the Giants, by the way. Wow. Um, but how many twins from last yeah. year are not on a Archer, team Bundy, anywhere? Sanchez. It doesn't speak Leon that well. Leon ended up re-signing with the Rangers, right? Yeah, minor, league the, minor league deal. But but to your point, the question that they basically had was, so no. you know, if you, well, so no, yeah, <laughs> so no, still looking for work. Estadio went to, uh, <laughs> to although Japan. he wasn't on the team last year, went to I Japan. Guess so, yeah. um, the question that they faced was basically, do we still believe that Ryan Jeffers can be a primary number one catcher, you know, 90 or 100 games a year? And if so, who's the best kind of part-time or backup to pair with him? Or... What they ended up doing is you bring in a clear-cut number one starter who's been starting for playoff teams for the last eight or ten years in Vasquez. He becomes the 80, 90, 100 start-per-year guy, hopefully. Great defense, like we said, that comes into play with the stolen bases going up this year. And it pushes Jeffers into a backup role, although I don't really anticipate them using him as a traditional backup because a traditional backup catcher, to me, is someone who basically starts once or twice a week, almost kind of at random. Right. Like, okay, the main guy's caught three in a row, you catch the fourth one. The main guy's caught four out of five, you catch the the sixth one, whatever. I think they're going to, and that's what, I mean, 
Vasquez started the first two, so it was natural to have Jeffers start the third game in Kansas City. But sure. Vasquez now back behind the plate. Now, I do think they're going to try to find spots to use Jeffers and start Jeffers, you know, whether it's once or twice a week, two or three times a week, mostly against left-handed pitchers because yes. that's really the one skill he's shown consistently yep. as a hitter is the ability to hit and hit for power against lefties. But he's been so unreliable and ultimately very bad against right-handed pitchers, which is the bulk of the pitchers that you're going to see, that even a fellow right-handed hitter like Vasquez, who's just sort of neutral in terms of platoon splits, is a much better choice, particularly when you factor in the defense. Right. So I think you're going to see Vasquez start the bulk of the games in general, but especially against righties, and then they may kind of split 50-50 the games against lefties. And if you add all that up in the big picture what that probably equals is somewhere around 100 starts for Vasquez and somewhere around 60 starts for Jeffers, although obviously with the catcher spot, especially injuries can come into play. I wondered if versus left-handed pitchers, this is before Buxton ended up taking right. over a full-time DH spot, if we would see Jeffers in the DH spot right. a lot. Just I, against lefties right. before just, people freak out about no, no, that. No, right. yeah, I would see him in the DH spot versus left-handed pitching. You can still have Vasquez and his defense behind the plate. He's still in the lineup. Also, right-handed hitter versus lefties. One of the things we haven't really talked about, maybe we'll talk about later in the show, I don't want to dive into it right now, it's too big a topic, but is just how miserable the Twins have been versus left-handed pitchers up to this point. It was nice to see Jeffers, you know, after not getting off the bench the first two games, I'm sure he was smarting a little bit, I've not not starting game sure. two, right, to get out there and not only you know get some important hits, but the way he got those important hits, which were just making contact with the ball, not really... He has been sort of a I'm going to swing for the fences kind of guy, and instead, you know, a opposite field flare and another another one, right? Yeah, I mean, the one was. Yeah, let's not give him too much credit. He put the ball in play. The first one, the second one was, was just a solid single. That's right. so. uh, but yeah, he's also similar to what they're trying to do with Gallo. David Popkins has kind of widened his base a little bit more too. They've also gotten rid of the big leg kick at the beginning, which works for many players. But for him, they're trying to kind of smooth out his mechanics and make less pre-swing movement in the hopes that he can make more consistent contact. Right. And he does have power. And so it's a situation where you're going to not just put the ball in play, just to put the ball in play. Um, but we've seen now twice with two outs in a spot where just putting the ball in play, just hitting a single, just you know hitting it where they pitch you, has huge value as opposed to trying to swing for the fences. And that could be huge for him. But, yeah, I mean – I, I don't think people quite realize how awful the average backup catcher is. <laughs> right, right. And so he's a good backup he's catcher. He's a really right. good backup <laughs> right, catcher. Exactly. And yeah, right. Specifically, a guy you can spot against lefties, and he can be an asset. He could potentially pinch hit yeah. against lefties and be an asset. I would encourage people to look up his career numbers against lefties. They're quite good. Um, Two sixty-two batting average. Yeah. Seven ninety OPS against right. I mean, lefties for his career. Yeah, that's, that's pretty a good. good. It's a very you know, solid. Yeah. Really mid, not middle of the lineup, but fifth, sixth, seventh type right, of hitter. Right. Um, so, but I, I would anticipate what we've seen so far, which is a lot of Vasquez. I think they're going to find spots to a use Jeffers against lefties, b use Jeffers just when they've had six games in a row and Vasquez is just worn out, and c pair him like he was paired with Joe Ryan. Pair him specifically with pitchers like Joe Ryan or if Bailey Ober's back in the majors, young pitchers that he's worked with in the minors or in the majors with the Twins thus far, and are fastball dependent. So that there's not as much blocking involved. Right. There's not as much stolen base um, limiting yep. needed. Yeah, and fair. I think those are the spots where you can kind of minimize his weaknesses and maximize his strengths. 
But yeah, you're going to see a lot of Christian Vasquez. This is not a timeshare. This is a number one and number two catcher. When we get back, what do you want to talk about? We've got a little we got some segment. mailbag questions oh, yeah, that people that's have right, Yeah, out. that's right. Well, uh, if you've got some questions, uh, shoot them to the Brad, Shaw, and Bryant KFAN text line. It's 64686. 64686 for the Brad, Shaw, and Bryant KFAN text line. We'll cover some of those and some other topics, twin topics when we get back. On the fan. Welcome back to Gleaming in the Geek. We have been uh, getting questions in on the Brad Sean Bryant KFAN text line at 64686. If you've got some, feel free to send them in. Uh, two questions about returning injured players. Okay. And I think both of them kind of lead into a third topic. The first one is, do you guys expect Royce Lewis to return and or be an asset to the season? The second is, how long until Polanco returns? And how does his return change the batting order and defensive lineup? In both cases, I think it's worth kind of taking a look a level down below the Twins at what is going on with the St. Paul Saints. Because the St. Paul Saints, who unfortunately have already canceled their home opener tomorrow because it's going to be hell on earth here in Minnesota. That yeah. is often the case. Hell on earth? <laughs> Isn't hell hot? Hell's hot. Well, it's, I, yeah. Snowball's chance, I guess. I don't know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, they have got a loaded, loaded roster this year, and they've got it loaded with a lot of prospects. And turns out, I mean, that aid that's going to be fun to watch if you make your way over to CHS Field, which I plan to do because I enjoy CHS Field a great deal. And because you're banned from Target Field? No, not yet. Oh no, I mean, I've got, uh, I've got the, thing, I've got some good disguises. You're, not, you're not allowed to sit by me <laughs> in the press box. <laughs> yeah, we put, we put John I'm close in the to banned from the press box, but I'm not even banned from there. There's <laughs> wanted signs in the press box <laughs> if you're fingers wanted, crossed, John. Yes. <laughs> that would. I should print those out. Oh, I really want to print those out. Maybe they would be in the gray duck deck if they're going to be anywhere. They're no, they find love me. That's where the sting operation is happening. Half the profit of the gray duck deck is just John Bone. We could talk a little bit about that taste of the twins, by the way, if we're going to talk about uh, all the different places there. At I Field. am truly amazed that in pr- you, we were uh, not stressing, but you know, the, the notion of filling three and a half hours of live radio is somewhat difficult. <laughs> And, like, I did nothing today. Now, that's not unique for me. I often do nothing all day. But John went to the Taste of the Twins, which is where they invite all the media members and stuff to try the new food. And if I were to have done that, <laughs> I would need such a food coma nap afterward. And instead, John... I got a 15-minute food coma no, nap. No, I'm talking days, like a week <laughs> long. So for John to eat, you know... 8,000 calories of uh, fried foods and whatever, yeah. and then just make it nap for 12 minutes and then come to the radio set. I give him credit. I'm built different, Gleeman. You are built different. Uh, there's no question it, about that. It, it, part of me is like if I were built a little bit more like John, a little hardier, a little, little more willing to do multiple things in a day, <laughs> it might be better. And then I stop myself and I think, are you really saying more people should be built like John Bonus? <laughs> I think we can agree, although this is radio, it's theater of the mind. You guys aren't luckily, luckily are not seeing us. Neither of us. Good luck. Good luck being built as John Bonus. Yes. Uh, We're both wearing tuxedos, by the way, since nobody can see us. We got really dressed up. The foods that you want to consider this year, uh, the fried chicken that's going to be in center field is really good, which is a a nice thing. And then uh, near the gray duck deck, there's a stand now for the Union Mung Kitchen, which has like a noodle salad or something with a spicy, specially made, uh, I think, Mung spiced 
Kremarczyk sausage that they, they contracted from Kremarczyk sausage. Also outstanding. Those, okay. are my two, those are my top two those recommendations. Are your, those are your picks to click. Those are my, those are my picks to click for this uh, they, 2020 but they still, like My favorite is the Tony O. Cuban sandwich. They still I have th- that. I think they still have that. I know they still have the Hot Indian which is your uh, favorite. Tika Bowl, which is my favorite. Um, they still have the Luce out in center field, Pizza Luce? Uh, I did not make it. They did not have the third deck open, so I don't okay. know. I presume they still have Pizza Luce sitting up there at the Minnie and Paul's area up yeah. there. Uh, checked out the new scoreboard. Also, they've got a kind of interesting thing along the uh, right field, outfield line now, uh, foul line. They've got a, uh, a LED display that is in the concourse as you look out at the field. So you can kind of see the score and such that's going on. That's pretty cool. That I, that I liked as well. So anyway, lots of good stuff to happen at Target Field. This okay, getting back to these two questions. But, but also there's stuff good happening at CHS Field. Yes. Right. Which so is, Polanco, let's talk Polanco first, yeah. which is... He's eight months removed from the initial <laughs> knee problems of last year, which was a bone bruise and then tendonitis. Right. And he his last game last year was August, I believe, 28th. And he didn't have surgery or anything. And so clearly the hope was by the time spring training rolled around, maybe they ramp him up slowly like they did with Buxton, but that he would be ready to go. Right. And early in spring training, I had a Twins official say to me off the record, I would expect Polanco to appear in a game before Buxton and before Kirilov. Right. And then a couple weeks later, Polanco had, it wasn't a setback, but he was still having soreness. He had to have fluid drained from his knee. He just, it was clear. He just was not progressing to the point that they wanted. And, you know, 10 or so days out from opening day, they said, well, he's just going to begin the season on the injured list along with Kirilov. And it was Buxton, right. the one that's ready. Now, as a DH, it's a little different than playing center field. But there hasn't been kind of a firm timeline on Polanco and it's just because been, it's not a right. new injury and there's no surgery that he's coming back from. It's just basically pain tolerance and can they get the fluid out of his knee and the swelling down? And you know, can he participate in drills and show up the next day without his knee wrapped and right. be able to walk around? And so far, that hasn't happened. Now, at the end of spring training... They were relatively optimistic, they being the twins, that it was going to be weeks missed as opposed to months missed. Right. But I think we've heard that back in correct. August. I mean, my thing is we certainly heard it at the end of in September. Right. The, or, the idea that you can October. have a knee problem that is not surgical in August and have it now be April and the timeline to return is just sort of up in the air is clearly worrisome. Right. You toss in the fact that Polanco has had multiple ankle surgeries in the past, and you know he's 29, I think, but his legs are about 50 at this point. And I do think it's worrisome. You know, they're going like we talked and, about earlier. Gordon and Farmer right. are are subbing for him now, right? And that's a that's a fine solution for now. The problem is, is that it also eats up your bench, right? And so at some point, the question becomes, you know, can we, you know. A, you know, can he come back? We've already talked about the impact he could have the lineup, especially right at the Which top of the huge. lineup if he does I, come back. I right. generally think when healthy, Jorge Polanco might be the the most underrated core player for the Twins over the last, like, six or seven years. I think you're right. Um, he was the team MVP two years ago. Yep. He was an all-star four years ago. Yep. He's a switch hitter who, especially since moving to second, is a good defender. He has power. He draws walks. He's got speed. I think people tend to underrate him relative to Buxton or even like Nelson Cruz and all that stuff. I mean, he is most years, one of their five best all around players. Um, yeah. I would say four, yeah. <laughs> maybe three. And you know, that's uh, option. A, I want him back. <laughs> that's, right. Right. Option C, 
I'm kind of dealing with right now, which is I've got Farmer and Gordon kind of right. platooning there, and I would like to have those guys on the bench and available for other things, or if we have different injuries that could happen, I'd like to have them available. Option B is sitting down there in St. Paul right now. And, you know, right now, I don't know that he's necessarily option B, otherwise he'd be up here. But he's not up here because he spent most of the year, all the entire year last year in AA, and that's Edouard Julian, who ended up, you know, having a tremendous year in AA Wichita, then a tremendous year in. Um, Max Kepler heard us talking, by the way, <laughs> and it's just hit a leadoff home run. That's all it took. That's right. I should tell you that Rocco Baldelli said, can you please go on live on Barrero's show and talk a little smack right. about Kepler? That's right. And that'll, I said he was listening. Yeah, you're right. Clearly listening in the exactly clubhouse right. before the game went out and ripped a Johnny Cueto pitch in the right center for a solo homer. Yes, but Edward Julian is a second baseman primarily. but He's being played at second base. Right, it's similar to like somewhere. He's closer to he's, the, he's a second baseman the way Polanco was a shortstop. How about right. that? I mean, Gordon is playing second base now, but is not a great second baseman. Luis Arise, part of the reason they felt he was tradable is they ceased viewing him as a quality second baseman right. and started viewing him as a first baseman DH. I think eventually Julian, if he finds a long-term home in the Twins lineup, which I think he will, it will probably be as a first baseman DH and occasional second baseman, kind of like Arise at the end. Corner outfielder? Maybe corner outfielder too. Um, They've got a few left-handed hitting corner right. outfielders right now. But yeah, I mean... If they thought he was legit defensively, I think that would have opened up more of a possibility that he would step in for Polanco. I still think they would have gone with Gordon Farmer because, like I said, they're hoping Polanco is back certainly by May. Right. In which case, do you want to interrupt the development of a prospect who spent last season at double A and rush him to the majors if when Polanco comes back and let's say julian has not been great he's just been kind of mediocre right. then you're sending him back to triple a before he had really even played at triple a and it it can complements uh, com- complicate some things but if either a i like that we're now doing abc we're both <laughs> taking the same approach here uh, if either a polanco is out for much longer than they're hoping which has already sort of been the case but i mean right. if it's if it's june 1st and he's still out of the lineup right or b and or b neither Gordon nor Farmer is really producing how you would want them to produce playing in a platoon in that role. And Ed Julian, even if he's down at, at triple a hitting two sixty five with a bunch of walks and he's shown a little bit of improvement defensively at second base, it's not a work ethic thing or a rep thing with him. He's just right. limited. Right. He's had Tommy John surgery. So he doesn't have the greatest arm. He's played a lot of first base and corner outfield in college in the minors. So he's not, kind of a natural at second base, but he's made some strides there. He's just never. And they, I mean, Rocco has said, he, Second base is the kind of thing where, you know, repetition and, and right. work and putting in the time Especially, and learning the skills is something that you can eventually feel right. pretty well at second Especially base. Especially turning to a lot of that is just getting comfortable, right. smooth with it. Um, but, but, I mean, the thing with... So if it's May or June right. and Polanco's still out and, and Julian is healthy and playing well at AAA, then I think fans should be clamoring for him. But I think at this point, it makes sense to see where Polanco's at over the next several weeks see what kind of production you can get from Gordon and Farmer, which I do I do think that that duo is capable of being very productive if you if deployed in the right matchups. Um, and, uh, by the way, the other question was about Royce Lewis. Well, before that, let me do Julian. I would also suggest that if Julian does tear it up in AAA, similar to what we saw either in the Arizona Fall League or in the World Baseball Classic. Yeah, he was or, great for Canada. Or in AA last year. Right. That regardless of Polanco's status, 
he could probably find someplace in right. this lineup. I just I mean, think it'll be uh, DH first base type it, of thing. It might be. Right. It might very well be. Maybe you you move Gallo out back out to left field and you you end up uh, no, you know, mean, having him at first base. Julian has the potential. Bucks is playing center field. You have him at DH, right? Julian has the potential to be a really special hitter. I mean, there's some strikeout issue and some low batting average potential, although he hit 300 at AA last year. But he has led all of minor league baseball in on-base percentage the past two years. And he's not just an arise type who's singles and walks. Right. He has 20 homer or and more yeah, power right. as a left-handed bat. And he's pretty fast. He can steal 10, 15 bases. He's a good athlete. He's got defensive flexibility, although he's not great at any one position. When we talked about the leadoff spot, he would also be somebody that might yes. slide into I mean, that leadoff would, spot, especially versus right handed If he pitching. develops into the type of player that he appears to be right now in the minors, he would be, I mean, he might be an ideal number two, number three hitter, but he, he would be he lead off for, world by, for Canada, right? right? Yeah, he would right, be an right. ideal high walk, high on base percentage left-handed bat at the top of the lineup. Now, there was the other question about Royce Lewis, Correct. who's coming back from his second torn ACL in his many seasons. He's healthy enough to be participating in much of spring training, just not game action. He's going to be in extended spring training, kind of finishing his rehab over the next month or two. The hope with him is sometime around midseason, June, July, he can be cleared for game action. Now, yeah. the question there becomes, does he just do a brief rehab assignment and then rejoin the Twins? Because he was with the Twins when he got hurt last yeah. year. Or do they treat him once healthy as more of a traditional prospect and say, okay, we're assigning you to AAA, where, similar to Julian, let's say, you need to stay healthy, you need to perform. He's going to have to play other positions beyond shortstop. Although he started to do that last year before the injury. I mean, he yeah. didn't really have much time at AAA last year. No, he played 35 games. Yeah, something like that. Something like that yeah. I mean, it was, he, he was really good. Right, right. He was really good. He was good enough. And the Twins were banged up enough right. that they ended up calling him up, uh, you know, pre right. pretty early in his career. And, you know, Julian is closer to the majors because he's at AAA and he's healthy. But once healthy, Lewis will either be at AAA or with the Twins and realistically, he's not going to be a long-term shortstop for the Twins, A, because Correa is there, right. and B, because he's coming off back-to-back -back knee surgeries, we don't know where he's at from an athleticism standpoint. Right. But I think from a skill set standpoint, assuming he comes most of the way back, at least from where he was pre-surgeries, third base, second base, or any of the yeah, outfield another spots. Option for, another option for Polanco. He could potentially I mean, come back. Right? I'm of the belief, talking to some Twins folks in spring training about this type of thing, long-term they would love their infield to be Correa at shortstop, <laughs> Brooks Lee at third, Royce Lewis at second, and Miranda at, at first, first, and maybe Ed Julian at first or DH along with Miranda. Um, you know that is going to involve some health. That's going to involve some further development for guys, but that has a chance to be really good offensively and defensively with some switch hitters, some left-handed bats involved. And pretty cheap on the side of the shirt. Pretty cheap position. other than the shortstop for a while, too, <laughs> which is a key consideration. So, <laughs> right. you know, you mentioned AAA. Julian is a guy to watch. Matt Walner is yeah. a minor, reigning minor yeah, league player. Just imagine how many different places he could fit in on this. We've yeah. talked about Kepler struggling. We've talked about Gallo struggling. We've got Larnick biting off a fair amount uh, more than he can chew. Maybe not more than he can chew. He's been doing well in the cleanup spot and so on, but you know, a lot putting a lot on his bit plate. Well, I mean, Walner fits in for any of those, as does Alex Kirloff, who's also on the injured list and probably will spend some time. My guess right. is he spent some time with the Saints as well. I mean, so there you've got no Walner you've got, is you've got two bats down there that look, you know, like they're pretty close. Well, I mean, I don't, we don't know exactly about Kirloff, what Kirloff's situation is, yeah, right? But yeah, well, close. <laughs> well, sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that he's 
he's necessarily close to healthy. I'm saying he feels like he's close to productive. You're you're incorrect. I'm shaking my head on okay. radio, which is always a great thing to do. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, Walner, I would describe as kind of a mix between Larnick and Gallo as a left-handed bat. Yeah, that feels he's got, right. He's got good plate discipline. Yeah. He's got a great arm. He's not a great outfielder, but he's got a great arm. Right. He's got 30-plus homer power. He draws walks, high strikeout rate, low batting average. He's a guy who, in, if they had traded Kepler, I could absolutely see him in the opening day lineup too. They also have Austin Martin, whose status is yeah. uncertain because of an elbow injury that he had during camp. And then yeah. from the from a pitching side, Bailey who, who Loper's there. We just mentioned who they got Austin Martin from. They got Austin Martin in the trade that they sent, got, sent Jose Barrios away. He was one of the top picks in the draft that year. He had a pretty crummy year, to be honest, with uh, last year, but seemed to have bounced back in the Arizona Fall League and then showed up this year and has a bad elbow in the spring training. So so those are some of the bats to watch at, at Tripway. They also have guys like Kyle Garlick, who have been productive major leaguers who are now there. But yeah, uh, from a pitching side, they have the back-to-back Twins Minor League Pitcher of the Year, Louis Varlin, Minnesota native. <laughs> right. Wal- yeah. Walner is also a Minnesota native. They have Simeon Woods-Richardson, who was acquired along with Martin in the Burrios trade that you just mentioned from Toronto a couple years ago. They have Bailey Ober, who we talked about earlier in the show, <laughs> right. um, who is clearly a major league caliber starting pitcher, but is having to bide his time at triple 31 starts in his career, like a 3.82 ERA. Mm-hmm. Or That's Thanks. exactly as ERA. Okay. 147 strikeouts and 148 innings. Okay. I only yeah. can cite that because I've written it like eight times <laughs> in the last two weeks. I mean, he's, he's a legit, he's, he's a guy who should be on a roster. Yes. Pitching wise, they also have Randy Dobnik, who's trying to make his way back from back to back years missed with so a finger problem. Pretty good in spring training again, and in they his have, first start here. They have Trevor McGill, who was a big part of the Twins bullpen last year and right. kind of got cut mid spring training, a little bit surprisingly. They have a guy named Brent Hedrick, who's a lefty, who I think could be in that Cole Sands long relief role at right. some point to yep. kind of break him in, get his feet wet. So, and and they're hoping, you know, in addition, that's a pretty stacked. I mean, they have. Five of the top eight prospects on, on my preseason ranking. Now, a couple of them are hurt. I think we had seven of the top 11, something like that. Right. There, there. Now, Brooks Lee's starting the year double A, but if he performs well at double A, I would be shocked if he's not at triple A midseason. And he then, was the Twins' top, top draft pick last yes, year. Yes, he's their best prospect, really. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's what, A, it's going to be fun to watch at triple A, but also there's actually, it's meaningful to track the performance of these guys and where they're playing in the lineup defensively because that's going to kind of hint at where the twins view them as potentially being able to help them when they're called up. And I think you're going to see a lot of these guys. I mean, a lot of these names that we just mentioned at triple a are too good for triple a. Right. Um, and are in the twins long-term plans with a lot of these guys, especially someone like Lewis, if he comes back, Julie and all that. And so the question is guys like Kirloff guys like Polanco, how long are they out? And then guys like Kepler, let's say, or some bullpen guys right. who we might talk about Emilio Pagan next segment. Sorry in advance, everyone. Uh, um, you ruined my tease. Yeah. Well. <laughs> How long will the Twins stick with underperforming veterans when they do have some very intriguing prospects waiting in the wings at in St. Paul? Well, it's also, <laughs> as we saw last year, uh, it's helpful to have prospects at Double A AA and Triple A when the trade deadline approaches. True. You know, suddenly you've got all these guys you're trying to figure out, how are we fitting all these guys in exactly? Well, maybe you don't get to fit all these guys in. Maybe uh, you maybe know, they, they all end up we, in Cincinnati. We, we, talked, we just <laughs> talked about uh, maybe at, at the DH spot. We, uh, you know, Buxton now plays center field, and we go out and we get a designated hitter, right. a big bat or something for flipping a 
double A prospect or a triple A uh, starter that we can't find room for in the rotation. And we should also mention three of the good twin starting pitchers this year are free agents at the end of the year. Right. So, you know, we might be seeing some of those guys from the Saints in the 2024 rotation as yeah, well. I mean, so. it's, it's crazy for a triple A rotation to have Bailey Ober and Louis Varlin. Right. I mean, those guys are both, I would argue, certainly Ober is clearly a mid-rotation caliber starter in the majors. I think Louis Varlin, he's won back-to-back minor league pitcher of the year for the Twins, and he made, I think, five starts in September and was very solid for the Twins. You know, watching him, I mean, he could, the majority of teams would have him certainly as their number five starter on opening day. So the fact that he's in a triple-A rotation with Ober, and we haven't even mentioned someone like Jordan Balzavic, who's trying to come back from a bad year and a broken jaw suffered during spring training. So I don't know. I expect the Saints to be really good, but I don't really care about their record. Right now, I know, right? Yeah, I'm more interested. More importantly, right. I expect them to have guys at the ready to not only fill in for the Twins, which we saw is key, because last year they had to turn to some real scrubby, you know, minor league veteran type of guys. They have legit prospects who can fill in in the rotation, in the bullpen, in the lineup, and it. It's going to be an intriguing subplot to the season, assuming those guys play well at AAA and stay healthy. When and where are the Twins going to kind of open the door to them to join the mix here? Yeah. Uh, when we get back. Well, I've ruined the surprise. You really ruined it. Sorry. The most asked question in, in the, the Bradshaw of, and Bryant yeah. KFAN text line has to do with Emilio Pagan. Dun, dun, dun. We'll talk about that when we get back on Glee. the fan. And welcome back to Gleeman and the Geek. We were going to talk about Emilio Pagan. I think we're going to see Emilio Pagan in this game, Aaron Gleeman, because the Twins <laughs> have already jumped out to a 4-0 lead off of a three-run bomb by Joe Yell. Nice, yeah, nice series there. After uh, Not a great defensive series uh, in the bottom of the first, but uh, top of the second, we got a walk by uh, Jose Miranda, a, uh, single. a, a single by Nick, by Nick Gordon, all versus Johnny Cueto, the right-handed pitcher, and then first pitch, 87 miles per hour, uh, you know, m- middle and maybe the outer half of the plate, and he just launched it. Yeah, so. it looked very similar. We thought we were praising Joey Gallo quite a bit earlier. Wasn't enough. He now so has home runs in three, three consecutive, consecutive at-bats, at bats, right? Because he didn't get one more at-bat at the end And of the, the one was a double off the wall. He could very yeah, easily have four consecutive home runs. He is on fire I mean, right we talked now. about this, but just the, the, the way the ball... I mean, he, these are line drives. There was no question on that pitch, right? Yeah. I mean, here I, there was no question. There was no question in my mind ha- before the pitch was actually hit. Well, yeah. where that one was going. Yeah, Johnny Cueto, who was almost a twin last year. Okay, so yes. like you joked, but it's it's true. Emilio Pagan came in uh, yesterday to not quite mop up. They were up four runs. Yeah, it was seven three at that point. Seven three, bottom of the ninth. Right, and. As soon as he came in, my Twitter mentions at Aaron Gleeman <laughs> went berserk because I've written quite a bit about uh, yeah. Pagan and tweeted quite a bit about Pagan. Although I would argue, some within Twins think I've been uh, overly harsh uh, towards Emilio Pagan. I would argue that all I'm doing is presenting facts and that he's created the harshness by pitching poorly last year. However, it, no one ever goes, oh, you've been too nice to Byron Buxton. <laughs> well, when he's playing well, I read he plays the Twins well. don't. Twins don't. Yeah. I got you for that. No, calm down about the praise about Carlos Correa here. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think we were both kind of on the same page that neither of us would have brought back Emilio Pagan. I oh, feel my like, goodness. 
Yes. Okay. I thought you were going <laughs> to disagree. Uh, I was like, I don't even know you, man. Uh, but, you know, obviously by sticking with him last year through what were extreme, extreme struggles, especially versus Cleveland in the middle of the season, the Twins were signaling that they believe he's a better pitcher. I mean, it would be hard to be a worse pitcher than he was in the middle of last season. But, you know, my thing is... he finished well in September. Sure, in a lower leverage role. My argument against that line of thinking is, you know, you're not the first team to think that about Emilio Pagan. When you look at him, he throws 96. He gets a lot of strikeouts. When he's rolling and he's going well, he does look like an elite reliever. But his mistakes... And I would say if you just kind of judge him by the... The pitches he throws, he looks like 96-mile-per-hour fastball. And he, you take a look at what he is doing, and you're like, that stuff feels like it would right. play. You know, the in, the problem, same way, in the same way that Trevor McGill's does. Sure. <laughs> the problem with Pagan, and we, the, the Padres found this out down the stretch in 2021. The Twins found this out in the middle of last season. When he makes mistakes, he leaves them middle-middle, and they get demolished, similar to what Cueto just did to Joey Gallo right. there. His mistakes are not just hit for singles and doubles. His mistakes, and they're seemingly about one per outing, and we saw most of them against Cleveland, he just puts the ball on the tee so often yeah. that it cancels out all the good work he's capable of doing. Now, with that said... Well, and especially last year, what we saw was he also just had trouble with his control. Right. I mean, that last year, I would say he actually took a step backwards from where he had been previously because he was also just putting guys on base on top right. of giving up the instead of the a one or two run home run right. it was a three two or three run now run. i've been so critical of pagan over the last year that another beat writer banned me from <laughs> tweeting his name for the entire offseason however now that he's pitched we can talk about him again with all of that said if you're going to bring him back for three and a half million which the twins have done again i wouldn't have done that but right. if you're going to do that you need to find places to use him, yeah. and he's not a long reliever. I mean, now, he can go multiple innings, but, you know, a four-run lead in the ninth inning, while people may perceive that as a game still in doubt, <laughs> if you're waiting for lower leverage or less in doubt spots than that, right. he's just not going to pitch very often. And I know people are going, oh, no, not that, anything but right. that. But, you know, a 7-3 to three lead with three outs to get against a, a bad team, too. Right is something that a mediocre pitcher will convert, you know, 95% of the time. I mean, they don't pay him three and a half million dollars to be one of the, to be the eighth guy in the bullpen, to be the long reliever, right? right? And we've got, we've got, a, we've got three guys at AAA and Cole Sands on top of that, that are all waiting to fill that role in the pool. Right. So he's going to be the seventh guy in the bullpen. And what we saw in the, in the Royal series is he's the seventh guy in the bullpen. Right. Like he came into the lowest leverage situation they had in that entire series. Well, Moran was a little bit more. Moran turned Pagan's, into a higher leverage by giving up a two-run. Oh, okay, all right. But yeah, sixth or seventh, those two are sort of, I would say, right. Fair point, right. And, I mean, he didn't didn't look good in the WBC. He didn't look good in spring training. He didn't look good at all last year. I didn't understand why they brought him back at $3.5 million. They kept telling, I didn't understand, I didn't understand why they offered him arbitration. I really didn't understand them thinking that they could trade him. Well, I mean, this is similar to what we talked about with Kepler couple segments ago but they they i was told flat out similar to what i was told with kepler we can trade him yeah and i remember saying well that's great why don't you well, yeah right yeah uh, and they're like well we <laughs> think we, can, we think he has more value <laughs> prove and we, me wrong right all <laughs> oh, right please uh but i mean it's 
they said the same thing with Gio Urshela and they ended up trading him. I mean, they, they, there is a, they generally have a knowledge of can right. we make calls and move this guy for a, some marginal return. But it's funny to kind of say that and then say, but we're deciding not to do that, whether with, with Kepler or Pagan. And I'm like, well, that's great. You don't want to trade him for a marginal return. But if the alternative is keeping them on the team and letting the team suffer right. because of it, right. what have you really accomplished? Can with we that? not have another seventh guy out of the bullpen right. that is that we don't trust with a we barely right. trust with a four run lead well, in right. the bottom I mean, of the ninth? If you're gonna have a guy like Pagan as the sixth, seventh, eighth guy in the bullpen, and you're you're just gonna hold him back for games that are kind of out of reach already. A, like we said, there are fewer of those spots than you may think if you're not counting a four-run lead in the ninth inning as a low leverage, low enough leverage spot that people feel safe using them. But beyond that, I would just rather have a young starter or former starter able to soak up multiple of those innings if you're going to hold them back for a mop-up or a long relief. If you're holding Pagan back for situations that barely matter and he's really only able to go one or maybe occasionally two innings, then that's the worst worst of both worlds. You're holding him back as almost like a specialist for spots that don't matter, in which case, is that really a good use of a roster? Spot? I would suggest I'd rather have a 33-year-old left-handed Danny Colome on the roster. And they ended up, they, had, they traded him for cash considerations. Right. I mean, there's... I mean, I, I, right. I don't get I, it. Believe me, I, I agree. I, I just don't get I it. I like that John's now attempting to overtake me on the <laughs> Emilio Pagan anti-bandwagon. It's just, it's just it's, listen, I've been through the Ron Davis era. <laughs> right, we've been through the Alex Colomay era. Alex Colomay era. I've been through the Rod Davis era. And the Rod Davis era was, lasted. It was one of those things where after a really, really terrible season, they brought him back the next year. Right. And you're just like, what are you doing? Right. And then the next year's bad. And it's just, it's, it's one of those things where it feels like, and, you know, there's a lot of smart guys in the Twins organization. Uh, I know you guys understand the the idea of sunk cost, Right. <laughs> you, you, right. At some point, you just—it feels like they keep playing the slot machine, and they're just like, "I know it's going to hit eventually. It's going right. to hit." And the thing that I start to question is, okay, what if you guys are all right about Emilio <laughs> right. Pagan, and this season he ends up being a good, solid kind of seventh inning setup man? Okay, <laughs> is that the most precious right. commodity in the history right. of the world yeah. that you've had to live through a horrible season and bring him back and all this stuff like? You the can, jackpot is not that good. Right. The right. jackpot is not an it's MVP. Not, I'm not getting a hand pay on this. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's I, I don't get it. I do think, you know, the idea that every time he pitches, people need to freak out is probably a little absurd yeah. at this point. But I don't know. <laughs> I think it might be justified. <laughs> totally justified. To I mean, look, <laughs> if sometime this week he comes into a two run game in the seventh inning. Right. Yes. Right. Freak out. Right. Yeah. But if they're. If it's a four, five, six run lead, ninth inning, you know, these are the spots that you're going to have to use someone like him or you're just wasting the roster spot. Listen, I would have, I had no problem with using Pagan where where, my question is why, why is he, you you get that, right? Like, why is he even on the roster? You are preaching to a choir that is singing along with you. Here's where we're going to see him. We're going to see him versus Houston. Yeah, to mop up. Well, I don't know. I don't know, but some there's yeah. just no way he there's no way he doesn't do something terrible versus <laughs> there's no chance. Boy, you're gonna you're gonna have some people in that clubhouse asking well, you about your uh, your statements about me. Uh, uh, should I ban you from talking about him? Yeah. 
Yeah, do that. Yeah, ban me from. I don't think I can stop. Those wanted posters in the press box aren't going anywhere. (laughs) See, Pagan's going to be stapling those to the. Ban me from watching him while you're at it. Can you do that? (laughs) All right. Well, this is just getting mean now. All right, Uh, John. Really, at the end of the show, John's just like, "All right, I got thoughts." This is, you guys are on my S list. Like you said, after three and a half hours yeah, you of uh, talking, yeah, get a little punchy. Uh, all right. When we get back, let's talk a little bit more about uh, the Marlins and what uh, what we can expect of them and uh, and then wrap up the show. We'll do that when we get back. Yeah. Welcome back to Gleaming and the Geek. They said it couldn't be done, John. Happy little music. Three and a half hours live I'm, on the radio. I think that Happy Love Music is about the Twins being up 4-0, but you think it's because we made it through. An entire made it show. through the rain. Some, play some Barry Manilow on the back how, end of this. How does anybody do this five days a week, <laughs> 12 months a year, for 20 years? You gotta really like to talk. Yeah, and I thought I liked to talk. Uh, you do like but, to talk. Yeah, my girlfriend tells me that all the time. Man, you like to talk. Um, John tells and, me and, that, too. And, I, and I'm, I'm amazed... And I'm not too surprised that your vocal cords are starting to give up. Honestly, just a I can bit. feel like my speech is affected. <laughs> a man, a man is not meant to uh, talk for three and a half hours. But <laughs> we got a few minutes left, so we just wanted to a couple things. One, thank not only Dan Barrero, Chad Abbott, Justin Gard, especially Brett Blakemore for holding oh, our hand for sure, for the, and for just the, sitting for through the last this. Three and a half hours. Yeah, not right. <laughs> I told Pleasure them, as always. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> I told them, feel free to take a nap, watch soccer, whatever you got, whatever you can do to pass the time. I did. Uh, Common takes a working lunch. I did take a working dinner. Okay. Uh, while while this was going on, yeah. I was you, locked in though. He went to the Super Moon Buffet across the street. <laughs> right, yeah. uh, so I just wanted to thank everyone for giving us a shot in the big chair. Hopefully, we've not screwed it up so much that we will uh, arrive home and get a text from Chad saying uh, Wednesday has been canceled. So as of now, <laughs> we will be back. 3 to 6.30, filling in for, for Dan Barrero again Wednesday. We'll talk we'll about have, the Miami series. Yeah, we'll have three whole games to talk about because we got tonight's, tomorrow night's, we and might also Wednesday afternoon. talk a little Wolves if they can bounce back and, you we'll know, see. who knows. Do Wolves play tomorrow night? Is Tuesday I'm night? afraid to look. I watched last <laughs> night. Ugh, I'm a Wolves, big Wolves fan, and it was just depressing, <laughs> even by their standards. Uh, and also, if you've enjoyed these last three and a half hours, first of all, God bless you. Thank you to my mom. That's really all I'm talking to. Uh, and you want more, first of all, tune in for, uh, Wednesday. We'll have more for you. But also, right. I would encourage you to subscribe to the Gleeman and the Geek podcast, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts, on iHeart, on Spotify, on Apple, wherever. What I like to say is if you're one of those people who's like, thank God they're talking about baseball. I, yeah. really, down, I don't get enough baseball talk in my life. I really want more baseball talk in my life. Well, we tried to fix that about 11 years ago yeah. by starting a podcast where at least you can get a good hour and a half, two hours of deep dive, uh, obsessive compulsive, yeah. a crabby about Pagan talking <laughs> for, about, for about an hour and a half about baseball every week. And then, you know, if on top of that, even that doesn't do enough for you. We also have this Patreon where we do it another couple of times for another hour and a half. And those just cost you a buck a piece. So yes, but Patreon. let's get them started on That's the right. free show. That's right. Gleeman and the you. Geek is the name. I'm Gleeman. He's the geek. Right. We've heard several billion times over the last decade. How can Gleeman not be the geek? <laughs> it's a fair point. <laughs> it could be just the geek and the geek. It's not a great title for a show. No. So we've decided with Gleeman and the geek. But uh, yeah, we would love to have you 
tune in for that. And also, even if you don't want that, tune in Wednesday. I'm right. already looking forward to this. As much as I say this was how do people do this, I got it kind of gets you addicted a little bit. But especially because I'm looking forward to talking about the twins in three in a couple of days. Yes, because, because we'll have seen Tyler Malley, who's pitching as we speak. Right. We'll see Kenta Maeda's return from Tommy John surgery, and we'll have that afternoon before we go on the air, Pablo Lopez second start right. against his old teammates and Luis Arise, which should provide plenty to talk about. We'll also see that have seen the twins face a really good pitcher. Alcantara versus on, uh, yeah. on Tuesday. Cy Young winner. Yeah. Rating, Cy Young Cy Young. Winner, rating, we'll also be able to talk about Luis Arise and, you know, his, I think he was hitting 529. That's coming, it? Coming, <laughs> coming, oh, he's really dropped off coming, since he, coming into this, uh, since he left coming Minnesota. into today's match. Uh, I miss Luis Arise. Yeah. I do. I just miss him. I just, I, I, the whole conversation about Max Kepler is that much more painful because we used to have <laughs> Luis Arise there. Although, and, and, and just to be clear, I'm happy with the trade. I mean, I'm not right. disappointed in the trade. I really feel like Pablo Lopez has a chance not only to be, you know, the best pitcher on the staff, but a chance to get into that ace level. Like he seems to be kind of dancing around that level. We talked a whole if you missed the first segment, the three back three hours ago, where we talked about the new pitch that he is throwing to right handed uh, hitters on a regular basis and how much more effective that makes him. Go back and podcast it. Or they also, by the way, got a pretty good prospect in Jose Salas, 19-year-old shortstop, they, along with Lopez right. in that trade. Yeah, so, he's number eight on Twins Daily's this uh, prospect. Is, this is one of those trades. They didn't trade Arise thinking Arise was going to turn into a 250 hitter all of a sudden. This right. is one of those trades that you hope goes pretty well for both parties. Right. I think that's that's likely, probably. I mean, Luis Arise can hit, and if Pablo Lopez stays healthy, he's a very good pitcher. And if Salas turns into a, a you know switch hitting part of their infield three years from now, that I think can can add value. But. I mean, in some ways, this game it also has another trade on. You know, we've uh, we we get to see Malley for the first time really pitching at what we think is hundred percent. We checked out his velocity readings; they looked like so they were far, pretty so good. good, pretty good through the first knock on, inning. I'm not getting John's head, <laughs> the wood. That's right. Uh, right now, so thank you for listening. Thank you to Brett on the ones and twos. Thank you to Abbott and Barrero for uh, being crazy enough to let us take the big chair. And check we'll it, be back check out Wednesday yep. and check out Gleeman and the Geek in the meantime. We'll talk to you on Wednesday. Bye-bye.